Hello, everyone. Chris Martinson of Peak Prosperity here with you uh, today. This is an explosive, amazing, wonderful interview. Today, we're talking with Simon Michaud. He's an associate professor of geometallurgy at the Geological Survey of Finland and uh, the Circular Economy Solutions Unit. We're going to be hearing more about that as well. His undergraduate degree uh, in physics and geology, so it's in applied science, and his PhD in mining engineering from University of Queensland. His work experience includes 18 years in the Australian mining industry in research and development, three years in Belgium at the University of Liege, researching circular economy and industrial recycling. So we're going to hear a little bit about that. Uh, work experience in Finland has been at GTK, has been, been uh, minerals intelligence in their MTR unit before joining the KTR in mineral processing and geometallurgy being developed. So what are we going to do? We're going to discuss the realities, people, or should I say the unrealities of moving from fossil fuels, which we know we have to do, geologically speaking, right? If not climate speaking for some of you, but it's, it's a geological thing. We're going to have to move from fossil fuels to the so-called renewable or rebuildable or alternative energy systems, which we'll call green energy systems here today. So what are those realities or unrealities? This is a big story. And you need to know about this as well. We're going to discuss uh, many things uh, with Dr. Michaud here today, including long-term objectives around development and transformation of our life into this new future that's coming. So this is by far the most important topic you could possibly understand. But perversely, it's actually one of the least studied and least well understood areas, given the enormity of the challenges and the implications if we get it wrong. So, Simon, Dr. Michaud, welcome to the program. It's so good to have you here. Hello, Chris. It is very nice to e-meet you. Uh, web meet you. It's very, very nice indeed. Thank you. Thank you. So, hey, uh, let, Simon, let me put you on the spot right up front, and then we'll dig down. Okay. Given our current trajectory in terms of transitioning away from fossil fuels, so current trajectory, you know, the path we're on, and towards this collection of energy systems, again, I'm going to call this green energy for now, what are the chances that humanity is going to pull off a smooth transition? Zero. Zero. Okay. <laughs> it will not be smooth because we've actually chosen it to be so. Right. There are solution vectors out of this, but we have point blank refused to engage with any of them. And if we were to actually engage in the way they would be smooth, we should have started maybe 30 years ago. But we didn't. So that means smooth, uh-uh, it's not on the menu. What can happen is some of these solutions are actually doable for a small number of us. Uh, like uh, um, how many people, for example, have you met that point blank refuse to acknowledge a lot of these issues? Uh, I, I personally most met quite them. a few. Right, most. Right, so how do you think you're going to go on a problem that you don't acknowledge exists, let alone try and work? So it's not going to happen. So a solution for the vast majority of people is not on the table, not because it's not possible, because they chose not to engage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, and, now, this is just so important because because so much hinges on this, right? And and of course, we're just inundated with mass marketing around mm -hmm. these green energy solutions, right? Yeah. I mean, you see the articles every day, just like I do, right? Wind now cheaper than coal. Uh, mm -hmm. Solar now cheaper than coal. They always say it's cheaper than coal, but for some reason, these wind and solar companies um, go out of business with great regularity, which suggests something's not quite right in this story. But but here's the thing: the idea is we're going to transition and we're just going to operate on these alternative 
platforms. And if we don't, wow, uh, a lot of things go bad in a hurry, right? So so just let's focus just down on the, let's just, uh, let's start talking about some of the realities. Okay. And I guess let's start at the beginning for people. Um, so to build these systems takes resources, human labor mm -hmm. and actual minerals and things like that, mining, all that. And on the other side, the energy we're going to use to build these systems comes from what we'll call the existing fossil fuel system mostly. So why don't we start with with the energy we do have before we talk about the energy we might have? Where are we on the energy that we do have story? Right. So there was a, a, a the concept of depletion of fossil fuels has been around for a long time. Um, and 20 years ago, we first you know raised the flag and we called it peak oil. It was dismissed as a crazy conspiracy theory at the time. We've now got an observation of peak oil in a localized form. November 2018, we did indeed have a peak. Right. And a year later, we had COVID, the gift that keeps on giving. And so everything really went sideways. And now we're trying to claw our way back to that record level. Now, what I found is, is um, what we call peak oil has to actually evolve. Uh, some work done by Art Berman, who is an excellent analyst and this you know, does labyrinth consulting. He actually put a, uh, um, a slide together to show that um, total liquids, a, a portion of that is now coming from biofuels and to, and to make gasoline, and a portion is coming from natural gas liquids, but part of the gas industry to make gasoline. So this is terribly inefficient, but they can force the issue to still deliver stuff. Crude oil has in fact peaked and is declining and looks like it's not coming back. So we may well have seen peak oil, but not total liquids peak yet, right? because we're now forcing it from other sectors. So, and what that means is the the crude oil is what's needed to make diesel, and it's and it's going to be to make my bunker fuel for uh, maritime shipping, and things like asphalt. All all the heavy end of the fractionation, that's now in decline. Yeah. So. I've I've read the articles. They say peak oil has been debunked. Peak oil is is uh, <laughs> been proven wrong. Well, I've yeah. been debunked too. It's like being burned at the stake. After the first time <laughs> it happens, you're not so worried anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so um, I actually have investments in specific oil wells, and I can tell you by for a fact they deplete. And if mm -hmm. a single well depletes, it goes through its its production curve, right? And once it's depleted, baby, it is gone, right? You can try and refrack and stimulate and do things, but but individual well peak, which means collections of them do, which means whole fields go through the same cycle, which means whole countries, which means the whole world. It's just it's a fractally understandable problem. So if you can show to me how a single well does not experience a production peak and decline, then I'm willing to entertain the idea that somehow. This is not actually a, a legit theory. It's a, actually a geological observation. And so I want to make sure we're right about that because there's been a lot of marketing to confuse people yeah. about the issue. The only thing we might be confused about and we can argue about, and it's a legit debate, is how much more is there to find? Yeah, correct. So in terms of discoveries, most of it was discovered in the 60s. And we've got like a, and, and we've increased, found increasingly less since then. And the record low for discovery at the moment, I believe, is 2020, I think. Mind you, the previous low was 2017. We're not finding new stuff. Right. Yeah. Yes. 
And the quality, and this is something that doesn't come out very well either, the quality of what we're finding is also not very good. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the light sweet crew that we had you know, in the 1900s, for the early 1900s, that's all gone, especially in large proportions. There's, there's very little of that left. So when we do extract the stuff out, there's a lot of infrastructure and capex required upfront to to extract this stuff and process it. And so we have to work harder and harder and harder to get the same unit of, of um, uh, um, energy. What's interesting, my my path with this was in mining research, and my thing was originally comminution, the grinding of rock, and the grinding of rock as an as an energy relationship. The finer you grind the more energy you need, but it's an exponential energy curve. They call it the hooky energy curve. So going finer is not a linear trend. You need exponentially more energy, and we're having to grind finer and finer because we've mined out all the deposits. So we, the way I like to describe this is two inverted pyramids where you've got, on one hand, you've got the energy pyramid, which is top down. You had these big, massive quality deposits like, like Gawa and what have you, and, and amazing quality oil. Right, and uh, and over time we've used all this up, and now we're down to things like tar sands, in the Canadian tar sands, or um, oil that's full of sulfur. And we've got to drill really deep in the ocean to get it, and then we've got to refine it. And, and there's a lot more to it. So we've got an inverted pyramid, but next to it we've got another pyramid that's the right way up. You know, back in the early 1900s, we had, and and you actually were the first in the world, as I understand it, to present this, and you have my thanks for this because it made life so much easier for people like myself to organize our thoughts. Right, so you originally had these really, really small, high-quality deposits. And you had this uh, picture of, of this this boulder, this great big copper boulder sitting in a stream and two two guys sitting on it. Um, the, the North American frontier didn't have industrial industrialization as we knew it. And so when Europeans arrived, it was a pristine environment, so such things are still possible. All right, so this is where they got their copper from. But now all of that's gone, and we've got these massive open pit deposits and, and feasibility studies i've taken part of have had a bottom cutoff level of 0.1 percent copper copper 0.1 percent that's 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 the lower level and since then i've heard that they're going lower again that means a thousand pounds of ore yep. to get a single pound of copper right yep that's right what? yep so there comes a point when dealing with the waste is not a problem we're not running out of copper deposits Right, like the entire Andes mountain range is a giant copper deposit. This just happens to be really low grade. Also, the majority of copper mineralization is at a, at a nanoscale. It's really, really, really fine. And we don't have the technology to grind that fine in such large quantities to be economically viable. Right, so you know, people often hear, so you hear things like, oh, there's lithium in seawater. Sure, there is. How much effort do you have to go through to get a single ton of lithium? Asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, so 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 we've got this a situation where where and I've got this idea that that the commodities industry has been misunderstood. Right now, we've got this culture for the last you know however long that that throw money at something and it's all okay, and mm. it's been on the understanding that resources are infinite. We don't have to think, we don't have to worry. Just throw more money at it. It's an economic problem. You know, stop your whining. Stop making me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> but what what's what? is really happening is you actually have a four-way push-pull entity when you, you don't just have energy you don't just have energy you have energy you have minerals you have technology and you have economics 
-hmm. And where there's one, you've actually got the other three if you actually look behind the curtain. Right. So that's and, and then there's the recognition that all of those systems harvest raw materials from the natural environment, the planetary environment. Right. Right. And and that's how we really are. And so any replacement system has to honor that or we're back to freeze to death in the dark. Well, let's start. Let's talk about this. I want to continue the oil story. So it was just oh, sorry three, four that, yeah. weeks ago. Three, four weeks ago, J.P. Morgan, of all people, um, their analyst department on commodities came out and said, uh, a little awkward, but for reasons, mostly due to lack of investment and discoveries reasons. and stuff like that. <laughs> the, the reasons. Uh, we're going to be a little short on oil from here. And they only projected out to 2030, but they showed that there's a shortfall that's persistent and widening from 2026 out to 2030. And my prediction is it just keeps widening. Right. But but they went out that far. And of course, that's a euphemism. There's no such thing as a shortfall of supply compared to demand. There's only a price that destroys enough demand to get it mm. down to where the actual supply is, right? So it's a standard, standard thing. Can you pull up, uh, you have a chart, I think maybe you got from Mark Berman. It's it's showing where, where he thinks we are in the oil story. Um, and it's that one with all the orange in it there. Yes. So... So first up, um, the, I guess this is the EIA um, and also the, is this the IEA too? Yeah, I, yeah right EIA, too. IEA, Rystad, BP and Labyrinth. So Art will have gone through this and he, this yep. is a hall of mirrors. Those organizations put information out that's often conflicting and they'll yes. do things that are very hard to un unpack. Like you, you can't have supply and demand overlay each other anymore because they embed biofuels in with normal oil. So, so, so now you've got this uptick and you can't overlay yeah. them. So Art will have used his professional experience to make a judgment of what is the best information to put together. And I trust him far more than I do to any of those groups along the bottom there, like the IEA or EIA. So, so let's pretend even like this could have a decade of wiggle on it. So I'm not concerned about that, yeah. uh, but because the story is this important. So just take us through this chart, if you will, left axis, you know, um, bottom axis. What are we looking at here? Okay, it's actually easy to go to the previous slide which is this one. Hang on. Sorry, that one. Mm -hmm. This is total liquids. This is what I was saying before. So we had a localized peak November 20, 2018. Unpacking the data. So total liquids is everything that actually we use in ICE vehicles. Some of that now is, well, there's our possible peak on November 2018. It's not coming back. It's declining. Right? Yeah, 84.6. Yeah. So, yep. but we've now got biofuels and what's called natural gas derived gasoline. So it's all the light stuff. And so this is where we're at in that. But this is a warning shot. The heavy stuff does things like uh, diesel and maritime fuel. But it's, it's all the workhorse applications that is actually so it makes our society run. That's now in decline. So this is a warning shot. And so then we come to this slide where he's actually sort of managed, this is sort of where we are. So we've got like a, a, a line that probably goes, there's 2027, that's only four years away. Where, yeah. So he predicts crude, which is the dark orange, tries to come up a little, but never actually recovers to the 2018 level, which means we have indeed seen peak oil. But what we call peak oil in context is useful. We've got to evolve now to include other things. You know, the push-pull between technology and resources. So we've got our natural gas liquid 
uh, is is the one that actually saves the day for a couple of years. It increases. But to do that, we've got to traumatise the gas industry. That's okay because we've still got gas to draw upon. And Art is predicting that in 2027, uh, so that's now not four years away, it's actually three years and a couple of weeks away. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> We're now talking weeks. What? <laughs> uh, so... Um, <laughs> And yeah. also some of the post-2023 stuff hasn't been uh, funded yet. It needs CapEx up front, right? You, you need you need a lot of money up front. Not all of that's actually been secured, right? So we've got a peak a couple of years out if all goes well. <laughs> what, 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 what could go wrong with a U.S. president day trading the price of oil and driving it down uh, by selling the SPR? <laughs> Right. I, I found some weird things like like things like the derivatives markets now holding everything together. The most commonly yeah. traded derivative is oil. Yeah, right. Uh, you know that 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 um, you could, the realization that our financial world is actually joined at the hip at oil at multiple points. You know that that was quite a a rough day for me. That I had yeah. to rethink a lot of my beliefs. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I would want I would want um, consumers and suppliers setting the price, but uh, it's they're actually at the margin on the story. Speculators now yeah. set the price, which is yeah, not ideal, much. right? Very much. So, uh, so, where are so but but this story? is profound. So, so I mean, everybody, if you're watching this, and I know you are because you're hearing this, uh, this is huge. This idea that we are possibly facing a, an imminent peak in this output of of what we'll call oil at this point, but it's really the crude and condensate. That's the C plus C at the bottom. That's actually yeah. the real stuff. And, and and by the way, this is much beyond like what goes into my gas tanks and how much drives on diesel. That's important, but there are 2000 feedstock products that come out of a refinery, including paraffins and, and uh, precursor chemicals that feed everything plastics to pharmaceuticals. Like none of that's actually replaceable at this stage with um, electrons that come out of a solar panel. Right. So, Pretty so, not- but, yeah. So so there's a huge 150-year-old industry with thousands of derivative products. It's relying on that orange part on the bottom. And for my listeners who know this, an entire financial system that's acting as if that bottom mm-hmm. orange part will only grow larger forever, hey, Hosanna, infinitely. And we're only four years away. So a lot hinges, a lot, people, like your standard of living, your whole stability of your financial system, maybe geopolitical stability, all hinges on this chart not being correct. So I'll take it further, and I'll actually sort of quote back to you something that you've actually sort of covered in previous work is the implications of this chart. Yeah, I love this chart. Yeah, this is... Mine's, you not, know, mine's not beautifully marked up like this, so t- I love this. Yeah. Um, so hang on, l- let me get the marks off then. There you go. So... Um, Oh, right. I love the marks, Take, but yeah, add them in. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you've got all um, this. This is also one of arts, arts work. So, um, but GDP, gross GDP for the year of 2018, graphed up against total liquids consumption in the same year. And I believe you, you, you have this way of making sentences that are actually sort of very, very impactful. And I think you actually said the quote you back to you is more oil, more GDP, less oil less gdp no exceptions mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah so yeah and so there is the larger european economies there's the united states there's the BRICS. 
Now, I think in this chart, that's what the world's coming into is from a biological point of view, energy is the master resource. Reduce mm -hmm. the, the size and complexity of a biological entity is defined by the energy you put into it. Reduce that energy, that biological entity has to simplify and become smaller. Now, that is also the same in industrial ecology as well. What that means is, if we reduce energy, oil, which is this is what we're saying we're dependent upon, then the larger economies will have to balkanize, simplify, and get smaller, or simplify somehow. So all the ones up the end here, they're going to struggle to stay in their current form, according to that mm. idea. What what that means? Well, hmm, hmm. so there's the uh, Nordic frontier countries, which I, I believe that they will actually form a power block uh, because they do things very differently to the rest of the world. And in many respects, they're ahead of other countries and things like investment in communal transport and and uh, non, non fossil fuel energy systems. And, and also as a culture. They understand discipline very well. Yeah, and I was just in Iceland, and and they're they're just just brilliant. Their geothermal plant spits out you know almost free electricity, but then they pipe the waste heat. I'm putting air quotes up, waste mm. heat, and they pipe that into t town in is is uh, eighty degrees Celsius water, and all their buildings get heated for free. People regulate their their house temperature by opening the window. You know, um, yeah. It's so just, it's so. Nice. So, so they get to live way down on the left part of that axis, but still have a, a very high standard of living because they have um, they they they've found they have a they have a, a a geographically localized solution for not needing as much liquid fuels as somebody else. It's it's a brilliant thing. Um, yeah. So, so uh, but the, the, then then they're vulnerable in other respects. Mm -hmm. uh, True. You know, they're, they're they're very vulnerable in other respects. So I think. Uh, yeah, this is a very decisively important. We are still a petroleum driven society. So that R squared for people watching, I mean, this is a chart, right? So we have a left axis and a bottom axis, right? And it's um, they're both log scale. So because that's a flat, a straight line on a log scale, it, um, it tells us good information from that as well. But the fact that we have this straight flat line with an R squared of 0.92 means if you wanted to have, if you wanted to, I'm just speaking very grossly here, but if you wanted to say, tell me why a country has more GDP 92% of the explanatory power comes from just understanding how much liquid fuels they consumed, right? Yep. Grossly speaking, right? It's like, it's a very tight relationship. And and if we were, if this was not true, if liquid fuels weren't that important, we would see dots not on that line. They would be scattered up to the left and down to the right. right. Yep. Yeah, but we don't see that, do we? We don't. So that, 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 that represents, I, I believe, 190... It represents the majority of the countries. Um, I'm not sure if it's all of them, um, but it's all it's it's all the ones that uh, um, all the major parts of the economy are there. So well, we got the G20 on there. So it's most of the world's economy. That's for sure. Oh, so do you remember this one? So so this one here is world GDP. And total oil production, and we both have the starting point of 100. So they're indexed 100, so they overlay. And in the beginning, when we were winning, oil was energy, energy was work done, work done was economics. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in 1971, we went off the gold standard. Yep. And so we <laughs> could actually balance that, but we could now do stuff by throwing, by just printing more money. And yes. life was great. We didn't have to take responsibility for anything anymore. And so we used ideology to solve our problems. And this is where we are now. 
<laughs> that's a great I'm so glad you connected those dots. I mean, that's just so important. We've been we've been attempting to recreate that prosperity of the 50s, 60s by just printing more money, which is just really stealing from the future, pulling consumption mm -hmm. forward and papering it over and making it appear as if all is healthy. But you talk to a young person today and they will tell you things are really not healthy from their perspective. Yeah, so, so the future is really going to hold the past accountable. And ecological reality is going it. to insert itself again. So when the fiat economy experiment is over, these two charts will um, converge, right? And what we were talking about is oil. That's the what. That's the red line down the bottom. So what does that mean for those two charts to come back together? It does mean that our in financial markets, our, our stock markets, they're all overvalued. They're all overheated. Mm -hmm. um, dare I say uh, to a fraudulent level so we've been living in la la land since 1971 you know, uh, yeah. or, or another way of putting this um, we've been spending mum and dad's money and living in their house until they come home and boot us out mother earth <laughs> father time get out <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's if you live beyond your means for a while, then you have to live below your means for a, a corresponding time. Right. And, and nobody's prepared for that. Not nobody's prepared. <laughs> Psychologically, I mean, so, so all that's fascinating. Actually, yeah. This, yeah. Double face actually, bomb. <laughs> so I have a number of uh, uh, slides that I use to, to get a laugh. Um, and that's important. If you're ch presenting challenging stuff, Yes. Make them laugh. Oscar Wilde, make them laugh or they will kill you. That's actually true. It's true. It's true. So, I'm glad you've, you've come to that same realization. I do the same thing <laughs> when I can. So this one I presented to that. the United Nations. So we need a better plan, right? So that plan's <laughs> got to be attached to reality. And so yeah. this was actually up on the screen at the United Nations. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> what? You can't do that. That's a... and, and you say the word says, right, this is your fault. There's been way too much talky-talky and not enough wickety-whack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the use of the euphemism. The whole system is about to evolve. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> We're going to, the, 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 like, the whole planet's about to evolve to a new planetary, uh, like, uh, um, uh, was it? We're going to, a planetary-wide bias shift to a new equilibrium. Are you part of the solution or are you part of the precipitate? <laughs> oh it's a little chemistry humor love it so so i mean this is i'm i i i'd love to hear your views on this um this is an interesting thing i i try and take people through this part all the time i try and drag my audience back to the energy side of the story and either it's like we're fish in water and so it's hard to talk about water to a fish um or the belief systems are are just too deeply layered to get to that because it it shakes a lot of things about how the world works and what my retirement's going to look like and what my grandkids are going to inherit. It, it shakes a lot of trees all at once. So I don't know what it is, but I have a devil of a time really communicating this in in the way that I perceive it. And so you know, I was a biologist, right? You know, I came through a Department of Pathology. I did a lot of cell biological work. Uh, I'm fond of telling my audiences that you know. I was a graduate student, so sometimes I'd partied a little too hard and came in late. And and if I didn't feed my cells, I grew neurons in, in dishes, right? If you fed them, if you gave them glucose, if you gave them their equivalent of oil, they were wonderfully complicated and complex things. They would send out axons and dendrites, and they'd be talking to each other in the plates, and that's what we were studying. But if you forgot to feed them, and the energy was removed, right? 
they would become these uninteresting little balls and you camp that up long enough, they would die. So I don't know, maybe it was seeing that enough times. I saw just, it's intuitive to me that with energy, you can have this amazing, wonderful, beautiful, complex stuff. And without it, things get simpler, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Less interesting. Our economy now with 300,000 jobs, I would submit to you, is an artifact of all this high tasty net energy, high caloric, you know, return food we're burning through, which in this case is fossil fuels. And everybody is kind of hoping that we'll get off of that somehow and we'll get onto this other stuff, right? Which is wind and solar principally. And and I just, I we just got to talk about the realities of that. Because if we get it wrong, I'll use a euphemism, which I know Nate Hagens uses, our economy, it simplifies. <laughs> <laughs> you know but well, you know do wait, we go wait. from three hundred thousand job classifications back to eight you know butcher baker candlestick maker farmer uh, you know it gets things get awkward uh the way i say it is um we are the problem that gets solved so um hmm yes mm. <laughs> <laughs> was it you either meet reality or reality meets you <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah. um, how I, there, there is a bit of a story here. The journey you've described, there are many people in this space have done the same thing. Um, my early work was rejected, not, not rejected, ignored. Like, like um, it was a, it was a tough gig to try and talk about the earlier version of this work back in say, you know, 2010, 2011, mm. especially when you happen to have a job in the corporate mining industry. So take us through that, Simon, please. Uh, what, what was the reception? Turkey so, crickets or hostility? Where where were we? I, I had like a, 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 a I, I, when you're on stage, you see the audience. They don't realize that you can see them. You can see every single person. And so while you're talking, if you know your stuff, then a part of your brain can observe the audience. You can see their body language. You know, uh, uh, who, and, and, and all the, all the stress, yeah, all the stress markers. You know, when they're bored looking at their phone, they're talking to each other, or you know, you know, what happens with their eyebrows in particular? You could see it all. And yeah. and what they didn't realize was they were training me how to be better. So in the beginning, first the earth cooled, and then the dinosaurs came, but then they turned into oil. Then the Arabs came and dug up the oil and they turned them into Mercedes Benz. Uh so that's a goodies episode quote, sorry. Um, so um right. Around, I did my PhD and I finished up 2005 and I moved into geometallurgy, but I also moved into crushing and grinding, which is it's all about the energy. Mining, uh, about half the cost of mining in hard rock is associated with the energy costs of grinding, right? And and that has got progressively worse over time because the grade's gone down and, and grain size has also gone down. So for every you know, your wedding ring on your finger most gold rings have something like three to five tons of waste sitting on a mullock heap somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. So you've got that side of the problem. But the amount of electricity that grinding consumes is about 7%. You know, in Australia, where we're a mining, you know, we're a mining economy, about 7% of energy consumption goes to grinding rock. Total, so, total energy for the, for the yeah. continent? Oh, for, yes. the, okay. for the electricity generation. Yep. Oh, for electricity. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you know, there's a gobsmacking amount. And, uh, and so the mining industry was very interested in can we find ways to break and crush and grind rock 
in ways that were uh, that we can save money on because you know this is a big cost and especially if you know the information i was collecting at the time i i had like five or six technical reasons that the mining industry was grading into a different business model decreasing grade increasing rock hardness uh decreasing grind size uh increasing water consumption when water was a problem there's a whole string of them all right so we were presenting that and 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 doing research that and i also picked up on um around 2002 the vulnerability of the mining industry to um oil they saw fuel as a cost everything's a cost water's a cost power's a cost not a problem it's just the way it is move on if the cost goes up well then the cost of mining goes up and are we viable or not and they have a very honest but brutal conversation around that economically viable no you're not everyone's fired sorry go away uh, and, and they'll happily do that every couple of years in the mining cycle. So in 1992, I saw the graph as a geologist of oil discoveries when most of it was discovered in the 60s. And uh, we have been increasingly uh, seeing more increasingly then. At the time, uh, you know, wet behind the ears student, you know, where I you know, had, you know, what was it? My hair was long, but my th thoughts were short. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's I didn't phase. understand the implications of it at the time, but later when I was looking at the energy stuff in mining around 2002, 2003, I did understand. So I became very interested in peak oil because a lot of the energy, while it was uh, like a mine site runs on a lot of electrical equipment and that comes off a power station, usually run off from a gas power pipeline, have a pipeline of gas going out to the mine power station and everything else comes off that. So there's gas, but the truck and shovel fleet is diesel. And the truck, and like in the mine site of Escondida, one third of the energy in in use uh, of, of actually crushing and of processing the ore is to get the ore from the pit floor in a truck up to the plant because the pits are so large. One third, right? And so I I could sort of see the vulnerability there. And I tried to present these ideas to the mining industry, and I called it peak mining. And it turns out uh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have used the words peak mining because uh, in a belief level where growth is infinite, I, I've learned to use different words to avoid triggers. Hmm. Right? If you don't Smart. use certain words, uh, for example, uh, um, you, know, you, you use different words that don't trigger pre-existing subroutines in human consciousness. Hmm. And if you use different words, people have to think about it. And by the time they thought about it, you already passed them and presented the data. And and, and then, they, then they're angry with you, but they can't put their finger on why. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. So fun. <laughs> uh, I, I presented this as stuff, and I was very naive in the beginning. Yeah, well, I'm a physicist, and I'm presenting sort of stuff. Here's energy, and here's what it means. Mm -hmm. And so we, this is the direction we're going in. And if we don't resolve this, this industry is in a lot of trouble. It was a very, very savage uh, first few presentations. First time I presented, oh, yeah, he's crazy. Yeah, Simon, he's crazy. Um, he's, he's good on other stuff, but, uh, yeah, yeah, we've just got to put up with his shit and just, 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 let him just, just let him have the bone to chew on. And maybe, yeah. But then I kept coming back. And so there was a presentation once when they said, all right, let's have a serious look at this because the data had now gotten strong enough for them to not to ignore. And it turned out it was their data. Mm, that's awkward now, so when you're actually presenting to a hostile audience the whole audience won't fight you 
it becomes like an entity in its own right. And three, they will collectively choose two and sometimes three spokespeople. Two or three people will, will, will say, you haven't done this and you haven't done that and, and you haven't included this and how dare you say blah, 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 blah. Right, but if you can actually defeat those two or three people in debate on stage with what you have at hand, the rest of the crowd will break and run. Right, and that's what I learned early in the beginning. And this is like, uh, I did a martial arts years ago called uh, um, Tong Long, Chow Fang Li Kung Fu. It was all about how do you fight a group of people? And you don't fight them all. You only fight one or two of them and you convince the rest of them to run away. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's the psychology of that. And so I learned a lot in the beginning about what they prepared to accept it all. And in the end, we have what was called the King of the Mountain Defense. Is this real? Is the data real? And we're in a research institution, aren't we? Right? Guys, knock me off my perch if you can. Mm -hmm. I, I do things like I get like a bottle of whiskey out and so I put it on the table. Right. There's a bottle of whiskey up here for anyone who can prove me wrong. Of course, if you try it, you've got to bring your own bottle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, some of the choices I made early on did actually cost me my career uh, mm -hmm. in terms of career opportunities. Uh, also, um, I had a loss of faith in the mining industry because they point blank refused to see this very important thing. So I thought they're they're going off off a cliff like a pack of lemmings. I, I hear a lot of lemming talk mm -hmm. because the mining goes to a formula, and the formula is all about money, and it's all about economic viability in a hard nosed kind of way. And they won't understand anything un unorthodox, and they they're very risk adverse. They're very conservative. So I had through a, a series of evolutions of that. When I came to Europe, what I saw really surprised me. Now, in Australia, we're mining, uh, we're mining, we're agriculture, so extracting raw materials, it's fine. It's fine. We know what we're doing. But you get to Europe, they don't do any of that on scale. Like they don't do any mining. Mm -hmm. They buy stuff from the market. Right? And so the, the mining is considered beneath them. They do a bit of manufacturing, but the manufacturing is based on components made in Southeast Asia, China in particular. So I called it the China firewall because everything in Australia is sold to China too. And they make stuff mm -hmm. and sell it. Backwards. So it's the China firewall. And what I realized uh, was I was on a completely, in a, it felt like a stranger in a strange land. I was on another planet. And I had, I was there to learn. I'm not there to tell people what to do. I'm there to learn. So I'm sitting up the packing. Wow. Wow. What am I seeing? Gosh. Right. And, and so they had this thing called the critical raw materials map in the circular economy. That was based around keeping certain businesses alive. They didn't even, they, and, and it wasn't that they realized that most of those raw materials were coming from China. China was controlling a lot of it. And it turns out China did have a plan. And if you're interested, Made in China 2025 is the current generation of that. And by China 2049, China wishes to own and control all industrial actions on planet Earth. And so it's like a you know, all resources go into China and then come out again on their terms. Mm -hmm. If you yeah. want to do anything industrial. So anyway, so I studied that. What I'm getting at was I saw different groups having different professional languages, right? They, they did things differently and they described things differently. And if you didn't talk to them in their language, they could dismiss you. You get a pat on the head and get told to leave the room. 
Yes, yes, nice try, Sonny Jim, but uh, let the adults talk now. And so what I was seeing in 2015 was blew me away because you know, the Australian mining industry just crashed. I'd just come out of supporting feasibility studies in the private sector. Lots of good people were going to the wall because there just wasn't the money. So I get to Europe and they had this project called the H2020 project, 99 billion, that's a B, euros pushed into a research project to look at, you know, can we reinvent our resource profile around this and make the circular economy happen? So their strategy, pour a pile of money on the floor and hilarity ensues. What do they get for that? They had a stack of shiny reports that some of which were read. Everyone had a hobby horse. Um, everyone, it was a way of funding research and development. There was no comprehensive macro scale industrial reform plan. Not at all. Like, like uh, there, were, there were lots of talk. We're going to go solar. We're going to go wind. What I was expecting to see, this sector will have to have this amount of installed capacity in terms of gigawatts. And we're going to divide that up, some solar, some wind, some hydro. And this is the infrastructure we're going to need for that sector. And then this sector, we're going to do this. And then we're going to have these industry things to connect to each other. None of that. And that still doesn't exist. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we're at the right. point where, where we've all seen the, you know, getting the, they, they just have these beautiful charts and somehow they just take oil and gas and, and coal and they go to zero by 2050. And to get there, we have kids gluing their hands to roads and, and throwing yep. tomato soup on paintings because we just stopped oil. So so take us through this real quick. If we just stopped oil tonight, yep, we achieved nirvana, what happens to the mining industry? Right. So we're not going to mine stuff with solar panels and wind turbines. It's just stops it's then? Well, if you take away fossil fuels, um, yep. yeah, sorry. So they've got the idea they've got like an electric truck, like an electric battery truck. Yeah. And But they won't tell me how long it will last. Like, can it run for 12 hours carrying ore up that hill like a petrol cup, a, a diesel truck can? Right. And once it wears out, and, and do, how long does it take to recharge? A mine is based on the equipment you use to do in the mining. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just, I just, I got in this Twitter fight the other day because somebody's like, oh, we can just use electric trucks, you know, because some guy, some Canadian logger had said, you know, here's some, here's some data and did a great job at it. And so people are like, oh, no, we got these trucks now. You know, 1.7 kilowatt hours per mile. I'm like, yeah, on a flat road with a tailwind, right? Not a logging truck trying to get over a, a you know, a rough terrain, you know, with a 80,000 pounds on the back in, in going up a hill. But um, so then you finally devolve it and they have 850 kilowatt hour battery pack on this, on this thing, which is, that's impressive. I wouldn't want that catching on fire near me. It's a big amount of energy. I think they right? do catch on fire, by the way. Right, right. But, but. When you look at just 68 gallons of diesel, that has 2.5 megawatt hours in it, right? Hmm. So what are you going to do? Charge your logging truck up three times you know, during a work shift? I mean, it's just like nothing makes sense here in this in this particular story. But somehow there's we're supposed more, to believe. There's, sorry, there's a really few more wrinkles. Work. Okay, you're going to charge your truck. Where are you going to get the electricity to charge that truck if you're not going to use gas? Solar panels, wind turbines. Right. So then there's actually the next piece of the work. If um, 
I've, I've got a very interesting professional era coming in working with the Venus Project, which is where I'm going next year. If that yep. didn't happen, I would have actually continued my work. And the next piece of work was what happens if you take coal away? And the answer is almost all of our manufacturing would just stop because there's no viable alternative. Right. To make a solar panel, we like solar panels, right? You've got these silicon wafers. First, you've got to get uh, metallurgical grade silicon you know, quartz, which is in its own right not that common. You've then got to purify it into silicon wafers. To do that, you've got to heat it up to 2,200 degrees Celsius. We use coke. Well, China does most almost all of this work, and they use coal to do it. Coal. Take the coal away. How are you going to do that? Well, what are the options? Well, one of the options is some biofuels has the calorific value to accelerate that, right? Uh, and um, but only some. Excuse me. The other one is hydrogen. You can use hydrogen, and you're stepping up the process. And the third one is you could use electric arc furnaces in some applications, but not all. Okay, so the amount of coal we use is this a lot. Take this away, and now we're going to use those options now with, say, biomass. How much biomass do we need to make enough biofuel to do the same thing? And the answer is far more than the planet can actually sustain at all. At all. Just, like it's just for silicon wafers. Just for the silicon wafers, we are actually at the rate that we think we're going to make them. The planet cannot sustain biomass the system at this size. This is the we, we, the the old limits to uh, to what is actually possible here. So, how much of our industrial systems require heat, and where do we get that heat from? Take our bat and ball away. No more coal. No more gas. Ah, and they look at each other. What about other. cement? I hear cement is important. It is. <laughs> Takes a lot of heat. <laughs> you, you've got this deadpan humor, which is genius. <laughs> so I hear cement's important. <laughs> but yeah, I have it on good authority. <laughs> so, so this is actually a um, uh, uh, I think uh, if we take fossil fuels away, like coal, we've just taken for granted. It sits in the background. And we don't think about it. We think about it less than we think about oil. Oil we can see because the average civilian person uses oil by putting petrol in their car, right? We don't use coal. We buy stuff off the market. It's not our problem, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, and so if we lose fossil fuels, how do we do mining? How do we do smelting and refining? How do we do manufacturing? Right, right. Um, and even, yeah. Right. And, and so when the number starts stacking up, if we don't have a dense energy system, then a lot of our existing industrial capability will simply stop and it'll simplify in a step change, not in a nice, gradual, can we work this out? No, no, no. Turn the switch off and it's a step change. And so we haven't actually thought this through. We could think this through, but it's actually the nature of money that's preventing us from doing it. So back to money again. That's what I'm saying. They are joined at the hip. Yeah. And this was the value of your original piece of work in the crash course. You linked money right, to energy and to the environment. Brilliant. Right. So that kind of thinking is actually the only way we can actually get our arms around this, including the solutions. 
Well, I, I completely agree. What once once I, sort of that framework came into mind, I, I, it, it was my red pill. I can't see it the other way now. Um, and and uh, it's we desperately need more systems level thinkers out there, generalists, right? We don't need more specialists, you know, mm -hmm. going all the way down ec economics and they can run a better differential calculus on the Taylor rule for Chicago, right? We don't need more of that. Um, we, we need to, to think this through from the top down. So let's do this from the top down. So that chart of oil or let's say fossil fuels, we're getting how many quadrillions of BTUs you know, out of that system, right? And we'd like to replace yeah. that. That's what people think. Let's go with the delusion for now because it is a myth in my mind, but but you've got the goods. And I love this work when you presented it. So let's just imagine that a windmill is a physical thing. Mm -hmm. It's got, a, it's got a, a big concrete base with rebar in it. It's got a big, tall pylon probably made out of steel it's got a mm -hmm. nacelle at the top that's full of like gears and stuff it's got mm -hmm. big blades right that those are real things uh those require real manufacturing so the steel has to be manufactured the fiberglass comes from somewhere the concrete all of it and you've added this up and 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 so can you just take us through if we want to just version one get away from fossil fuels over some time frame and we're going to have this other system what do we need from the mining, okay. from, from the real world to get there? And how long so is that going to take? So the first part of the equation is what are the tasks that we've actually got to do? Now, so there's two, there's th three parts of the work. So can you see that? I see baseline calculation, but nothing, okay. nothing more. Okay. Yes. All right. So when I first started this, the, the idea was to get the right professional language into a form where, where we cannot ignore it. So th this is the full... Full step there. Right. So how many cars are in the global population? So we were talking about batteries in 2017. It was battery, battery, battery. How many cars in the global fleet? Do you know we couldn't get that information easily? So I had to actually go and estimate it myself. How many cars were there? What distance do they travel? It was done for Europe. And it was done for the United States. It was done for China. Uh, and it was done for a whole lot of other uh, countries. But no one had done it all together. So I had to go through this process of stitching it up. Something as basic as that was missing. And we don't make electric vehicles in Finland or Europe, right? So there's a global market and it comes from a central point, which means we either get there together or give or a chance. Mm. So, yeah. All right. So 1.4 billion vehicles traveled 16 trillion kilometers in the calendar year 2018. Now, in 2021, about 1% of the fleet was electric vehicles. So the, most of the system is still ICE. Renewable energy accounted for 6.7% of primary energy in 2022. So the non-fossil fuel system is largely not built yet. And as it's not built, not it can't built be recycled. Yet. Yep. Right? You can't recycle. So the European Union believes recycling is its primary source of metal. Mm. Right? And so that in itself, it's a belief, it's an ideology, and it's delusional. Right, right, right. So, it's the, the, so, so the so belief is that is that be, oh, we just have this uh, fossil fuel system. We're just going to what dismantle that and use the metals that are encased therein to build out no, this other system. No, no, no. It seemed to be a belief that the the fossil fuel system was so intrinsic and so efficient and so low maintenance that it happened in the background to the point where they don't see it anymore. Question: mm -hmm. How often do you think about the oxygen you breathe? I don't, but it just happens. They seem to believe fossil fuels were like that. They just didn't think about it. And it's a cost. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah, put it over there. Whatever. Thanks. 
appreciate that. Uh, and so when they say we're going to recycle stuff, they do recycle some stuff, but they believe this is easy and all recycling will be everything. And because they're not the ones who will do it, they can make these arm-waving platitudes and life goes on. Meanwhile, in the background, we still breathe the oxygen. And this is the answer I keep coming back to ideology. What are our beliefs? We don't believe we need to look at it. We don't. We, we never believed that this was a problem. Right. So yeah. I went through this process of working out how big was the electric vehicle fleet and when would you use an electric vehicle and when would you use a hydrogen fuel cell? And the, the, the split there was based on the two. I did everything in, in both systems. And so you can compare like with like the electric vehicle had a battery in it that was 3.2 times the mass of the hydrogen fuel tank at 700 bar. So the same mass of energy storage, your hydrogen fuel cell could go three times further or last three times longer. Ergo, anything heavy like a truck or a ship or a diesel freight train should now be a hydrogen fuel cell. Mm -hmm. However, hydrogen is not an energy source. You've got to make it. It's a carrier. Mm -hmm. Right? So, and if we're not allowed to use natural gas to make hydrogen, as we do now, you've got to use electrolysis. So you, to then we need... Let's say we're going to either charge the battery or make the hydrogen. We need 2.5 times the electricity to make the hydrogen compared to charging the equivalent battery. So you put those two things together. Anything short range is an electric vehicle in a city, for example. Anything long range is a hydrogen fuel cell or the workhorse vehicles. So 29 million hydrogen fuel cells require more than twice the amount of energy to make that hydrogen compared to 1.39 billion electric vehicles. That's mm -hmm. the ratio. And the well, future now apparently is ammonia, which you take hydrogen and you turn it into ammonia. So there's more energy again. Right. So then we were going to make uh, a lot of steel. So if we actually produce the same amount of steel that we did in 2018, but we did the use the hydrogen atmosphere, how much power would that be? Right. Uh, and if we're going to make um, ammonia. Uh, and ammonia now not only does fertilizer, but it now fuels the maritime shipping industry or part of it. Right, so how much energy we would require to do that? Uh, and so you go through all these sorts of things uh, and you, you sum it up, we need 48,909 terawatt hours on top of what we have now that's non-fossil fuel. What's interesting is the biomass feedstock. You know, we are talking about biofuels before. Yeah. So according to the IEA, that uh, they keep writing these nice reports, which are very useful for me to use. Thanks, IEA, if you're watching. Thank you. <laughs> keep up the good work. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. um, so... They made the prediction that 37% of the maritime shipping industry will be biofuel and then a big chunk of ammonia <coughs> and uh, a, a small portion will be hydrogen. Um, the aviation industry will contract by 38% and then will be in a combination of fuels, which are made from biofuels, but also from, say, ammonia as well. But it's actually easier if you model it as biofuels. Put those two together, we need 940 million tonnes of feedstock which is soy and corn, which is the estimates I've used, they're the most efficient, is the wheat crop for the same year. So we need more than double the wheat crop to do the biofuels for only a portion of the system that we have. Right, not going to happen. Right, so this is the this is to actually to, to stand still. This is the Red Queen problem. We are standing still in 2018, five years ago. Here's mm -hmm. the numbers graphically. So on the left, we've got 2018. This is what we did, 26,652 terawatts, and this is the system we want to bring in to replace it. 
So we're talking about bringing in a system that's much larger. It's just um, using energy systems that are just not as effective, ergo more expensive. And so here's the here's the tasks as we sort of go through and you know there's hydrogen and steel production and ammonia and and so the whole system will in 2018 terms will go from 26,000 to 58,000 in total for total capacity, assuming that we've got 9,528 to start with that we can keep. That's now, our now problem. I'm a, little, I'm a little confused because because um I I've gotten in this debate before. Some people have told me I think Dave Murphy even had a thing on it which says well well actually you know. There's a lot of thermal waste in gas and coal and stuff, and, and mm -hmm. electric's just a lot more efficient. True. Um, why why True do we is. need so much more on that right bar? Okay, so um, an ICE engine is between 20, 25 and 38 position percent efficient, depending on which system you're looking at in terms of energy efficiency. An electric vehicle is 73% efficient, mm -hmm. right? So what you do is you work out the amount of useful work, the distance traveled, yeah. Right. And if it was an electric vehicle, how much energy would it consume to do that? And so I, I, I found the actual metrics of commercially available vehicles, and it was a straight calculation what, what was of, of commercially available at the time. So first, the, the blue block is where we're actually producing, replacing fossil fuel power generation, oil, gas, and coal to generate electricity. The little hatch thing is the charging of the EV fleet. There's our passenger cars. It's actually one of the small tasks. But on top of that, now we want to uh, fuel the maritime shipping industry and do steel production, which is with things like coal. We're phasing it oil, gas, and coal, right? Uh, and so then there's ammonia production, which we now need for the shipping fleet. And heating of buildings that we use gas for at the moment now has to come from heat pumps coming off the electric grid. So we're forcing all our different fuels and all the different tasks onto the electric grid. The electric grid must expand. Simple as that. We're used to seeing electricity on its own and fossil fuels happens in an entirely different report. Uh, okay. So we, we are forcing all things to come together in one chart. That's why one's so much bigger than the other. Yeah, okay. All right. And uh, traditionally... Um, most people own like like in 2017 they would only look at passenger car EVs, uh, only passenger cars, which is mm -hmm. a, which is about 25 percent of this hatched bit here. We were looking at yeah, a tiny yeah. fraction. We weren't considering the maritime shipping fleet, or aviation, or heavy trucks at the time, or trains. Uh, you know, we weren't considering building heating, and and certainly no one was actually putting the numbers together. Oh, yeah, so, so we need 58 and a half trillion watt hours of new capacity. Um, yeah. That's not, see, it's not a, not a big deal, is it? Well, it depends on your definition of a big deal. Because by 2050, the IEA believes that the grid will go to 71,000 terawatt hours. So oh. 26 will go to 71. So these numbers are way too small. But the whole thing's mm. going to telescope out. Right. So moving on. Um, so we take the energy split. Um, again, the IEA put out a thing where you know, by 2050, the energy split will be something like this. They still had the gas industry in there and I took it away. So I came up with these where wind and solar takes up the lion's share of the primary energy going forward. So this is what they believe. Right, so we've got the amount of power that we need and now we've got a rough energy split of what's going where. 
and so we know, for example, um, geo, uh, um, hydroelectric has got to have 13% of 48,909 terawatt hours. And so then I went to, you know, you know the uh, fights that are happening now over energy return and energy invested? Yeah. Uh, about, you know, one sensible and one's not. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I step around that um, because papers have now come out that, to me, they're too complicated. Uh, or the, the calculations that are in them, um, to me, it make fundamental mistakes. But because they're peer-reviewed, they've been accepted, and so people reference them. And so mm -hmm. it, the whole tool has been corrupted, and I just stay away from it now. And to, uh, Charlie Hall and I were talking about writing um, a new energy return and energy invested paper where we get to the bottom of everything, all the way down to mining of resources. And we're right. going to try and actually once and for all sort this out. Hadn't been done yet. Now, hello, mm -hmm. Charlie, if you're seeing this. Uh, love your work, mate. Um, so what I did was actually got the metrics for about 10,000 power stations across all systems. What was delivered in 2018? Not what they promised, not what was theoretical, but what do they actually did? And, and I've got things like enough statistics where I could actually do uh, what, was, what did the average system deliver and, and what was the installed power? And what were the operating hours across the year? And look at solar, 11%. 11% of the time, solar was actually producing power. Guys, guys, so coal is over 90. So how many mm -hmm. solar panels do you need to replace the capacity of a single coal-fired power station? Yeah, and so that, so that is how I got this chart, this, this table. Uh -huh. Right, so that's our split. This is the number of average size power plants that we need, 796,210. Now, an installed capacity of 29.8 gigawatts. Now, the problem there is the existing fleet is only 46,000. So it's more than 10 times our existing system by virtue of fossil fuels are simply more effective at generating power. Now, a coal-fired power station is larger than a solar panel array, so you'd have to sort of correct that up in, in, in terms of, you know, your capex. But the land they take up, not necessarily, and coal's not vulnerable to the weather like wind and solar are. So the elephant in the room is wind and solar are variable, and they need a power buffer. Mm -hmm. Right, so, and that's not, so existing thinking, this is a, a net zero America, they have a report where they've actually worked, done a, a quite a nice study where supply and demand, they look at the difference between the two. Sometimes supply exceeds demand. In a day-to-day -day cycle, you only need five to seven hours of buffer for wind and solar. Now, watch this. Chris, I'm going to ask you a very difficult question, and I'd like an answer. Is the sun in winter less strong than the sun in summer? In the northern hemisphere? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right so so this is that they hadn't looked at long-term seasonal variation what? I, I, in fact everyone none of them had very few analysts looked at this and the ones that have tend to get blocked in in the literature oh it's just insane yeah and and so this is how they've come up with only five to seven hours but i still get flamed on social media that you know we only need five to seven hours so how are you going to balance the difference between solar and sun and um, winter and sun winter and summer and so this is a solar radiation radiation i won't go through all these slides i don't want to waste your time but so this is solar radiation in in berlin it and mm -hmm. let's say the dotted line is the halfway point anything over the dotted line you've got to keep 
and anything underneath is you need release. So that's our buffer, right? So the power yeah. buffer would collect power over six months, store it for six months or so, then release it slowly over six months. And so that is 28 days. It's not enough. And in fact, it looks like you know, that on that base on that, so something closer to 12 weeks would actually work if we were to balance this out. But that is six hours. So that's what yep. they think is enough to balance that system out. Fossil fuels are the balancing force now. That's the problem. Well, yeah. certainly we saw this with, with Germany, right? Because, you know, they, they just went through all their stuff and, and accidentally, oops, decommissioned their nuclear plants and then, oops, you know, uh, lost access to Russian gas. And so now they're they're busy mining lignite again um, as a as a low-grade coal form. Uh, but yeah, but they're, gonna... rapid, they're rapidly de-industrializing in Germany at this point. It's I'm so... seeing astonishing charts. Of, yeah, look, 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 I, look I, Great I... Depression style. Charts. I uh, got a few phone calls from the Energy Wind staff at one stage. Uh, all models for the future for them um, collapsed because they they were caught with their pants down. No one ever thought this would happen, yeah. and they were saying they were having a very bitter and un, and very difficult conversation with regard to what paradigm should take them forward. They just didn't know what to do. I said, should it be you know go back to coal? Should we go you know, to, to nuclear? Should we try and force renewable somehow? Uh, or what and and they, they just didn't know what to do and so they rang me up and they asked for my data which I handed it over and I, I didn't hear from them how it worked out but they were in a very very difficult situation now uh, Europe is in the process of deindustrializing, and so in many respects in fact one of the one of the bastard questions I like asking meetings is who who blew up the Nord Stream 2 pipeline asking for a friend uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it was uh, Jeffrey Epstein that's what I'm going so, with. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they didn't kill themselves either. Uh, so they, <laughs> they, they, um, they don't, they've been put in an untenable situation. Yeah. Industry is now leaving. Where's it going? United States. Yeah. And the United States wrote the Inflation Reduction Act about the same time as they were asking Europe to sanction Russia over the gas. Coincidence. You coincidence yeah. theorists, you. And, and in <laughs> fact, while we're chatting... This is the actual slide that I actually use. And when I present this slide, people who traditionally ask, argue with each other go silent. Right, gas. Now, I use 2019 because it's you know the last year before COVID, the mm -hmm. last year of sensible data. So this is the situation they found themselves in, Europe found themselves in, before festivities in Ukraine kicked off, which is it's a, it's a goddamn awful debacle. But yep. you know, here they're gas producers, but those producers happen to be consumers. And yep. so four nations have the biggest production, the biggest consumption, and the biggest reserves. There's only four. Right? And so um, so if you go net import-export, let's reorder the table. Russia is at the top by a long way. Yeah. And so Russia supplied that. Take it away. Europe needs a net 331 billion cubic meters so if you put qatar norway and the united states together you have a shortfall right so to do that they've actually got to take away all existing contracts it's not going to happen but mm -hmm. china and europe are actually the biggest consumers china happens to do our industrialization consumer uh, europe does consumption 
you put Europe and China together, we need 463. So after Russia, take the four biggest suppliers, the United States, Australia, and Norway, and Qatar, and you still get a shortfall. Oh, now what I personally think is happening here is when, when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, they knew exactly how their adversaries that would us re react. Right? What did we do? We hit them with sanctions, as many as we can. Now, if peak oil really was twenty eighteen, mm -hmm. you know, for, for crude oil, any petro, any fossil fuels asset would now have to be revalued. Now, because a lot of these contracts are in decades, that's actually a breach of contract law. Right, uh, and so whoever, so, so if if they try and force the issue, they've breached it contract law. Whoever breaches contract law have destroyed their business reputation. Right, in terms of behind, you know, when we actually sit down and they do negotiations for contracts and things like risk and and, and what have you. So you, Russia invades Ukraine, we hit them with sanctions. Those sanctions are also a breach of international contract law. Mm. We don't like to talk about that, but they are indeed. Right, so. Okay, um, so the Russians then can turn around and say, right, well, our last deal's off now. So if you want our oil, you're now going to pay for it in Russian rubles. Now, the Russian ruble was restructured. Surprise! It takes time to do that, which is why I think this was all part of the strategy, to be back, partially backed by commodities, including mm -hmm. um, oil. Now, if that was allowed to happen then all fiat currencies will be put on substantial pressure because of the debt they have. So Russia forced a situation where Europe, the biggest consumers, would have to buy their gas, right, or uh, using the ruble. And just, just like in 1973, the petrodollar agreement, the world was forced to use the US dollar for oil on something we vitally needed. It's the same situation. And so... Europe is now in a uh, Russian gas can't be replaced and Europe's in a conflict that has no visible acceptable outcome. And we've made choices on behalf of our allies who have actually attacked the Nord Stream pipeline, I believe, but they've also then taken all the industrial assets out of Europe. Right. So, so our own allies did this to us. And I think yeah. what's actually happening here is a version of the 1973 petrodollar to force the acceptance of a Russian currency. If they agreed to use that currency, the gas would have flowed the following day. Yep. But instead, we've gone to war and for a country that's not even part of Europe or part of NATO and is renowned for being the most corrupt in the world, one of the most corrupt in the world, where dodgy things happen. And we've destroyed mm -hmm. ourselves to do that. Why? So this is an this... opinion. I, I could be proven wrong, but you know, for what it's worth. It's a it's a big mystery to me, and I don't understand why, you know, the largest single largest by far active industrial sabotage in my lifetime was the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines. Yep. Right. And yep. Uh, I, I'm this kind of a guy. I, I'm like the tell is always in what happens immediately afterwards. So so they're like, oh, this is awful. Must have been Russia. I'm like, well, why wasn't anybody out there taking water samples in the minutes after that happened? Because you could. See if there were any tagants in the explosives, because mm -hmm. explosives are manufactured with very specific chemical signatures called mm -hmm. tagants that you can see, right? Um, and and so they didn't collect any data. And finally, the only time we got a picture of the of the pipeline blown up was 
when some TV station out of Finland, I believe, just dropped a camera over the edge, you know, on a cable. And we finally got a couple of pictures, right? That's all I need to know, because if you really thought it was your adversary, oh, my goodness, there'd be ships everywhere. They'd be collecting mm -hmm. samples. There'd be video. CNN would be running the same Navy dive teams, you know, video feed day after day with all the data and the evidence. But it was just nothing but chirping crickets. And then Sweden came out and said, yeah, we're going to we're going to block any investigation into this from ever seeing the light of day. So, like, oh yeah, God. but so um, Russia lost any leverage to actually force the Europeans to come back to the negotiating table. So now it's a military conflict or nothing. So it's winner takes all and the loser well, loses that. But then, but then as a side benefit, uh, the United States gets all of this deindustrializing flight because we still have accessible cheap gas. And so BASF is moving. This was, this is huge. This is a huge thing. So this is energy politics. But it comes mm -hmm. at a really awkward time because the story that, that you're you're outlining here, and I would love to also see just the because left off of this is the column of, hey, who are all the net importing countries? I think Japan has a kind of an interest in imported LNG and yeah. Africa yeah. and Pakistan. You know, there's a lot of countries that, that need to import. Um, yeah. So uh, this is extraordinary because Europe was just facing the the collapse of the energy end in, in Germany as a concept. So that that's leaves a bit of a mark right um the Groningen field in, in Denmark is like at the end of its life and so they're shutting that down it, it's clear that the UK uh oil fields are all in terminal decline at this point um as is Norway a, as is Norway so there's a lot going on and Europe's future depends on access to energy what kind of conversations are they having about this that seem reasonable to you so um, the day after the pipeline was blew up, the pipeline between Norway and Poland was opened, and they said, we don't need Russian gas no more. Ha, ha, ha. Right. Now, you mm. might notice that Norway is 135.3. Now, they have actually come up since then. Like I, got the, I got the data for 2022, the latest one, and it, things have improved, but you've got the same basic problem. Um, uh, whatever gas comes down that pipeline from Norway to Poland is not enough to feed Europe. Right. Um, and whatever gas does come down that pipeline has to be taken away from the UK. Right. So there, there is no way out of this. What I'm hearing is two things. So on the surface, I'm hearing the conversation. Everything's fine. We don't need Russian gas. We made some cuts. It's all good. We've got stuff in storage. They bypassed the sanctions by buying gas from China, who bought it from Russia. Mm -hmm. So Russia sells it to China cheap. Uh, that, that sells it to China at an inflated price. China then sells it onto Europe at a much, much higher price. And so that's how they were able to fill their stocks. The sanctions were bypassed. Everyone around me is talking, everything's fine. The anti-Russian sentiment is amazing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's a lot of, we'll be fine. Yep, yep, no need to worry. Good. Meanwhile, all the heavy industry stuff is suffering. Behind that, in the real conversations that I'm hearing in very few places, there is a lot of hand-wringing that they don't know what to do because Europe at large seems to be operating on a decision-making set of systems to a wider system. And it's not the United States. It seems to be a global financial system centered around London that's calling the shots. Hmm. Right. And, and so this is, I'm sorry, no, we must do this. And so everyone is in, in a state of shock and they're all, we're all hoping it just goes away. And, and since the Ukraine war has not gone the way we hoped, 
right now 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 there's there's a lot of um uh change the topic or they'll go to <laughs> the you know and so and so we are quietly appalled of the situation that is going in but the people on the ground are largely ignorant of it it, it, you're so polite to say it's Ukraine war is not not quite gone as planned. It, it worse, uh, it, it proved that uh, war has changed and that hardware is no longer a, a reasonable. Those poor people defense. have been put through. The people on the ground, never mind the people in in Against political drones. institutions on either side. The people yeah. on the ground. <laughs> it's a. Yeah, so you're saying it's for the people on the ground, even worse. I know a few people from the region, and they're devastated. They're, they're but but there's been trouble in that region since 2014, right? Yeah, and it, it, it 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 it's it's been very very difficult for for um, the Russian speaking people in particular in Ukraine, <clears throat> and um, like it, it, I I see the same thing in in almost every war. The leadership on both sides doesn't seem to care about the people on the ground on either side. Mm -hmm. They're not attached to the consequences of their, you know, machinations and strategies. Uh, but the people on the ground, they have got to pick up the pieces. Uh, so I believe what's holding the Ukraine war open and going is actually what's on the screen here, which is a. Um, leverage point to try and force another objective it's actually much much wider and i don't believe it's just russia that we are facing but it's actually all the brics economies together well this is an important point because um i i've read through so i'll tell you something that makes sense i was actually as a lead up you know have you seen an energy policy that makes sense out of europe i haven't found it yet uh, maybe privately you're having conversations that that are, are oh. starting to, to sort of wrestle with that a bit but what, three, four months ago, I read China's uh, energy plan put out by their energy minister, five-point plan, very sensible, made all the sense. It was like it was talking with you, right? They said, oh, renewables have a role, but we're only going to adopt them in at 1% of total grid scale per year because that's the fastest we think we can pull them in. We're going to have good relations with our neighbors. We're going to be importing for a long time. We're going to be looking at nuclear. Like the whole thing was very sensible, and they understood the dimensions of the, the what they were up against. Hmm. As I read it, right? So, so it agree with China or not? This isn't a pro-China screed. This is just saying there's a plan out there. It makes sense, but I, the plan in my country is sell the SPR when gas prices tick up slightly. That's our plan. Uh, Europe doesn't seem to have a plan that I understand yet, but China is very, very happy to realign and build new pipelines and take away all of Russia's surplus gas and mm -hmm. oil if it can. Um, that seems pretty important to me. So uh, China does indeed have a plan, and it's been started. If you saw it first in the two thousand and three resource thing, but it's gone along and it's not very nice, and they're being more successful than anyone else. My way of understanding all this is instead of actually seeing a country as an individual, or even Europe as an individual, Europe's part of a larger system, and what are the wants and needs of that larger system when we're actually talking about a systemic break? All the things that you've covered for the last 10, 15 years are all systemic. The, the, one of the guys I work with, hello, Hanu, uh, has put up a thing in GTK 
um, strategies. What if Simon's right? Mm. Right. So, so that he he actually posed this idea. Says, "All right, what if what if my idea has been put forward? What are the implications?" So, I'll put it to you. What if you are correct in your analysis? What are the implications for everyone else? And the the, the answer is everything falls on its ear. Now, a system will fight for its own survival for as long as it can. And one of the final stages is it will asset strip its provinces for its own survival. And I think this is what's happening to Europe. Now, back to ideology, the West, which really is America, but before America, it was the British. And before the British, it was the um, the, the, the Dutch. But the Western idea of doing things is like the game of chess take out the enemy king and so everything is in terms of a military uh strike or some sort of uh, economic uh you know, confessions of an economic hitman it's, it's take out the enemy yeah. king whereas the east china in particular they think in terms of the the game go it's not about taking out it's, it's all about quietly taking over territory and then one day your opponent wakes up and there's a suddenly you've got everything of consequence around them Right, and and they also think in terms of you know, like the hundred year marathon, whereas we now have real trouble thinking past the next financial quarter. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look at the cycles of empires, uh, as empires come to their conclusion, their leaders have actually lost their ability to problem solve to change, and if all you've got is a hammer, everything's got to look like a nail, which is why, uh, and also people who are used to playing a rigged game get stupid. I think this is what's happened to the West now that we've actually hit this problem of energy shortage linked to their currency. The decisions to actually go to a fiat currency in 1971 was the idea that this is a temporary thing, but it's become the thing. And so from that point on, we've we've the, the, the clock has been ticking down. We're on borrowed time. Now the time, the music stops. Now what? Count the chairs. Right. And our ability to solve problems is usually along the lines of some sort of dodgy conquest. Right. We can't do that anymore because our means to do that has eroded. And so the West, I believe, is deteriorating. And the next empire, you, know, you look at the cycle of empires, the next one is probably going to be China in some form where they apply. They've got their own internal problems. So so will they be able to do this? Well, it remains to be seen. But they're damn well trying. We're not even trying. What <laughs> uh, uh, was it uh, in, circuit, in in Europe? We've got this plan called the circular economy, where we talk in circles. Right, <laughs> that's our plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, so, I, I need to get to the punchline. It's so brilliantly stated. I, I love how you you think about that because it's how I think about it. Um, uh, but uh, let's get to the punchline of this. So many people are hinging what's that that we're going to transition to this green energy economy, yep. right? Yep. And it's a circular economy. We can put other fancy stuff around it. And we've got sustainable development goals and all that. It's going to work out because we're going to get off of fossil fuels and we're going to get onto this thing where we have to build 40, 50, 60 trillion terawatt hours of new stuff. Okay. That takes stuff. So the, the thing that really woke me up was when I came across a table of yours where you just did what I think is the simple math that ought to have been done right at the outset of any of this before we even sold ourselves this delusion that we're going to make this transition, which is how long would it take to actually mine this stuff that we need to build these things? The steel, the cement, the lithium for the batteries, 
the copper, all of that. This is it. Uh, please t take us through each of those um, uh, column headers up there and, and tell people how you got okay. into this data because this just lays it all bare. And I want to remind everybody that we have until 2027 when oil, liquid fuels, excuse me, finally peak out to sort this out. <clears throat> so Simon, take it away. <laughs> so what I've done is actually worked out the number of units we have, summed them all together, worked out the metal in each unit, and then summed them all up and worked out like how much copper, how much zinc, how much magnesium, and so on. So the whole system is summed up into one column. The most sensitive thing is the size of the buffer for wind and solar. Now there's four mm. calculations I use. One is six hours. One is 48 hours, one is 28 days, which is what I've been using. And then there's, there's the fourth one is 12 weeks, which is what's probably really the most sensible answer. Yeah. Pumped hydro can't do this, show that stored hydrogen can't do this, right? Um, and so now I'm showing that battery banks can't do this. And so what this means is wind and solar is not viable, is what the outcomes of what we're seeing here, which means we have no plan. Because if we're not going to use wind and solar, what will we do? Now, there is an answer to that. What you're seeing here is this column. You can see it. This column here is the total metal required to produce the one generation of stuff around you, the number of cars, trucks, and same industrial activity. If everything was all fossil fuel uh, free, all those units together, and we manufactured them, and there's, there's no efficiencies in there, so there's missing a lot of things. But this is a very crude calculation of how much metal we would need for the first generation. Remembering it all runs out in 20 years. Right, so let's take copper. Copper, we need 6.1 billion tons. Billion. So then we've got this column over here called global metal production. Again, 2019, the last year of sensible data. Mm -hmm. This is the mining industry what it produced across that year. It produced 24.2 million tons. So how many years of existing production will we need to hit this target of 6.1 billion tons? This is the final column, 254.6 years. 254 years of mining. And that's that's assuming that we've got uh, consistent ore grades because those have been declining. <laughs> those have been declining. So there's actually a shortfall in copper now. Because they can't get yeah. enough capital to get new things going and uh, new mines going. And so they've actually got shortfalls in the existing demand, let alone um, in, in increases of demand. Yeah. But going further down, we've got like a lot of exotic metals that we do use, like lithium and cobalt. But we, we use them in such small quantities because they're trace elements and they're hard mm. to get. And they're an exotic metal. But we now want to mine them like steel. <laughs> so we need, where is it? Uh, 1.2 billion tons of lithium and we mine 95,000 tons of lithium a year so mm. at that rate we need 13,388 years of production to hit the target we think we're going to hit I mean yeah. this just just lays it bare as being completely ridiculous I mean even if we said we only wanted to store 48 hours uh, or yeah. you know just six yeah. hours I mean it just doesn't exist that's right. That's exactly right. So do you know, um, they are still, put, so the, one of the answers we could make batteries out of something else. Good luck replacing copper though. Uh, but so I'm part of a battery research group here in Finland. And so I suggested in a meeting that we look, do we start up research projects that would actually look at different battery chemistries? 
And they said, look, we accept that your work is valid and we will actually need to do that eventually. But in this project, we want to go, what's going to come to the market in the next three to five years? Well, we've got resource shortfalls now. We're not going to make three to five years. So I think this is a black swan and batteries and electric vehicles, I think, will not be the thing. They'll, they'll we'll never make them. Something else takes place. And already Toyota has shut down EV production and are now promoting an ammonia uh, internal combustion engine. Right. So, so, so in other words, we've been focusing all our energy on the wrong thing all this time. Uh, you might notice germanium. Now, mm -hmm. uh, it's been believed that, that solid state batteries are the thing and they're going to take over. And by 2050, they're going to take a portion of the market. It's about a third of the market, they think. And there's three chemistries that uh, that I found that will dominate. One of them's got germanium in it. So some intellectual midget put this forward as an idea. And this is the idea of actually doing tech development without actually linking to, to commodities. So we need 4.1 million tons of germanium for the first generation of stuff. We produce 143 tons a year. That folds into 29,113 years of current production to hit that target. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this just, this is, this is so mysterious to me because this is just, this is the basic stuff you would do. All due respect, uh, I, I'm try, not trying to minimize, but, but this would be like the thing that I would, I would say a first year business student would do if they were proposing to mm -hmm. start a plant up, right? I mean, you don't, you don't just say, well, we want a tire plant. We'll put it over here without thinking, where does your rubber come from? Where's your steel come from? It's like the most basic thing. Oh, right? you have to remember, this is planning. And the people who do the planning think mining's beneath them. And they don't understand mining. Mining doesn't exist. We're going to recycle anyway. So when you actually come to who starts a mine, that's a different story. Then we're in the feasibility shoot. Um, mm -hmm. Is it feasible? Do we have a market? So this is the massive disconnect. And I've got a lot of people in the mining industry saying, thank you for saying the quiet part out loud. The stuff's being promised on their behalf that they're never going to do. Right. Yeah. So one of the obvious things here is, well, well, hang on. Why don't we just open more mines? So this is the actual numbers. When you look at mining productions black, pink is your six-hour buffer. And we're going to need that at the very least to do the switching buffer between supply and demand in a day-to-day -day fashion. Six hours is what the current establishment believes they think they need. But even at that level, mining's never going to deliver in its current form. The blue is 12 weeks, and that's closer to the real number. And that's a log scale. That's a log and you've got to scale remember, on the left. You got, you got to remember, this is all stuff that wears out in 20 years. Well, we do it again. Mm. <laughs> so, so then we say, all right, well, um, what about reserves? So, so let's go to the, uh, so this is reserves that are actually things that are actually attached to a feasibility study, like a pre-fees. We've had a look at it. Yep. Um, we think we can get it out at an economically viable. A resource is a patch of ground that's mineralized greater than background. But it, you know, it, it could be very fine grained or it could be too deep or it could be inaccessible. Or, uh, uh, then mm -hmm. A resource is not a reserve. But our current reserves our fraction, so this is production, and production is a fraction of our reserves. If we were to scale up all reserves that we actually had at the moment that are ready to be developed, right? So the, this is what we need. That's what we've got in reserves. This is a percentage of, of, of them. And so our reserves are less than 
for lithium, cobalt, graphite, and vanadium to have the same amount of stuff to stand still five years ago. So it's just now, not going to happen, right? It's just, just yeah. as, as sold in the conventional marketplace of ideas, as the narrative has been pitched, it just, it can't happen. There's, it's just not connected to reality at this point. So yeah, let's, let's stick the boot in and then we'll move on. So here's mineral reserves. So there's our four levels, mm -hmm. six hours up to 12 weeks. And the hatched line is mineral reserves. So now let's go to resources. So this is mineral reserves and resources on land. Still not enough if we've got to hit the blue. Yep. Now, one of the most flamboyantly stupid ideas I've heard in a long time is to mine the seafloor. Now, we could <laughs> yeah. do it. Yes, there's metals down there, but the environmental destruction that that would create far outstrips, it, it would kill what's left of the sea, sea life, uh, the, the mm -hmm. amount of metal that we need. So here is all the metal we know on planet Earth. Still not enough. Now, that's a log scale. So, so let me show this. Same data, but now it's a linear mm -hmm. scale. Mm. So there's the three levels. And so this is, the black is undersea uh, resources, the white is resources, and the gray is reserves. It's a dumb idea. This is a really, really stupid idea. We need a better plan. Here is proof. And do you know, yep. after two years presenting this, 200 times now, I think a little over 200 now, uh, no one has actually come back with some sort of counter-argument. People are listening. They're not rejecting it. They just don't know what to do. So, um, well, now, now this is the mysterious double face bomb. Uh, the mysterious yeah. part, right? Because because we're told by our erstwhile WEF uh, billionaire crowds, uh, John Kerry flying around, all that that, that mm. this is just a matter of willpower. You know, we're, we're just going to phase out fossil fuels. We're going to get there. We're going to do this. But it's a big emergency, and it's such a big emergency that we're going to put ULES cameras in ultra low emission zone cameras in in London to start photographing cars so that we can charge them more money to exist, right? Um, because it's that big of a problem, right? It's very serious. And yet, uh, let me let me, let me me add them up. Here's how many new nuclear plants I know about that are going in, mm. in the West, which care so deeply about the climate, about this. It, like to me, nuclear is a no-brainer solution to this. But even if you disagree with that, there ought to be a full-throated debate as to how we're not going to use those because we're going to do this other stuff. We're not mm. even having the conversation. Not yet. Uh, yeah. okay. So I did a study where I looked at the nuclear industry as it, in its current form. And the question was this, could the nuclear power plant fleet in its current form expand fast enough to be useful? If we assume five years to build a nuclear power plant and the, the average size was 14, uh, 1.4 gigawatts. The answer is no. Because if you did that, and if you brought on 25 new reactors a year while replacing decommissioned ones, it would take 75 years to go through all our existing res uh, reserves, resources, all the way out to unconventional. And you only get 60% of the way where we need to be to phase out fossil fuels. So, so current nuclear, great, the serves a purpose uh, you know, uh, and everything, and uh, um, but it can't expand fast enough. Now, this comes to the solution space. Um, Every single energy system I've looked at had a bottleneck, some sort of logistical problem. Every single one worked on a small scale, but when you scale them up to be available for 8 billion people, there was a problem. All the fossil fuels, all the renewables, all of them. And so if we're going to get through this, 
we've got to understand that energy is connected to resources, which is connected to technology, which is connected to economics. And all four are reinventing themselves in ways that we can't control. So that system has to, one of those sectors need to evolve. And the one that has the most use that's ready to go, which is, I believe, an evolution of the nuclear industry. Now, what I'm talking about here is uh, something that was developed decades ago, but we've rejected it. It's ready to go. And in fact, it is actually commercially happening in China already. I'm talking about liquid fuel fission using thorium as the fuel, but you could also use uranium. And the same system could even burn up some parts of the nuclear waste stockpile. Right. Now, the footprint associated with this is so different, so different that it's almost not nuclear. So I've got mm -hmm. some numbers to show you in, in, in a moment. When I first went through this process where I looked at thorium, all the writings in it, uh, I recognized that I was a PhD. I was a um, one of the guys that used to mentor PhD students, and there'll be a, a panel, and every six months, a student would have to come before us and present their work. And our job was to find the students who are in trouble and do something about them and help them. Most students did their jobs and they presented very well and they were fine. Every now and then you get a student that would try and bullshit us. Mm -hmm. And the language they would do use to gaslight us, don't look at the numbers, look at this shiny graph where I've changed the scale, look away, look away. These are not the drawers you're looking for, right? The, you, you start to hear the language. You say, right, mate, I've got you. I saw that language in a lot of the documentation around thorium. So thorium, so the difference here is between solid fuel and liquid fuel. Solid fuel, now you have a uranium reactor, you've got like these solid balls in this fuel rods, you put them in. We're actually after an isotope of U235 uh, and that runs the reaction. It, it's a tiny fraction of what's there and you, you take it out and when, when it can't do that anymore unless you fuel, uh, spent fuel. So thorium, all of the thorium could be used if it was accessible to the system. But the stuff on the surface of the ball would then um, become, you could like a, a coating you know, of graphite and zirconium, everything. but also the coating of the, the first layer of uh, thorium would go to an isotope of uranium, U233. But the rest of the fuel was blocked. So most of the fuel wasn't actually able to be used. You've got to take the fuel out, dip it in acid to clean the surface, well, it's radioactive, and then put it back in the reactor. So this is mm -hmm. saying thorium's not viable. It's just too it's just too tricky. Fair enough. Liquid fuel was around in 1958, right? And in fact, I've got this nice report in 1972 of several decades of research saying it worked. The language that actually talked about liquid fuel thorium quietly redirected you back into solid thorium and then said it didn't work. Mm. So it never actually got to the point where he actually discussed directly liquid fuel thorium. And so my bullshit detector, I, I, at first I didn't see this. And in fact, my big report actually, you know, has a section, I, I don't mention liquid thorium for this reason. I actually believed now the Kool-Aid. Uh, but I, I, someone, one of my trolls who gives me a hard time and some pointed this out, and I, I really do try to listen to everyone. And so I went back, and, and I was actually shocked to find that there was a solution there all along, but for reasons that we can go into in a moment, it was buried. So mm. if I may, 
I will show you the numbers that I have actually since put together. And let's see, where are we? I'm very excited by this because I'm, I'm a huge fan, not knowing a whole lot about it, but, you know, uh, the lifter LFTR um, technology and and what's possible. And I had Kirk Sorensen on my program twice years back, and hmm. he, he's trying to get it done commercially yeah. here in the U.S. But but I do know that. Um, oh, brilliant. I can't wait to see this. Uh, but but the China and India, but China in particular is out in the lead, really chasing this down so, uh, compared to other countries. So this is awesome. What do you got here? I was in Hong Kong recently, and I presented to a group of venture capitalists uh, and everything, and it was very uh, eye-opening. The group that was being run was actually run and controlled by the Chinese government, and I actually spoke to a couple of Chinese officials that were there, and they have a very different view of the world to what we hear in the media. Mm -hmm. They understand things very well, right? And they are, they are now looking, this is our century, right? And their attitude is they will happily watch the West burn mm -hmm. through our own mistakes and they're they're helping things along i believe but they're but we're, we're really doing it to ourselves right and, and they're just going to watch it burn and so they're actively pursuing all options they're not putting the hat on one option but they're not stopping things from happening like we are we are still using light water reactor technology that was designed in the 50s so that the Chinese are aggressively pursuing what I'm actually showing you here. And they believe um, it's like a horse race, which horse will get over the line first. Right. And um, but they believe this is a this is a winner. And they and they are quietly controlling it. Right. So this is a report. I can I can send you this report if you like. It's a status report of uh, a couple of decades of research that looked at the molten salt breed reactors. And they, they looked at uranium liquid fuel and thorium liquid fuel in the same reactor so this is what they're talking about here so that let's let's you have a salt and it could be um, uranium salt or it could be thorium salt thorium salt i like I'll, I'll show you why in a sec but you put you put the fuel in the on the reactor and you bombard it with neutrons thorium's not radioactive it's what's called act uh, fertile you've got to bombard it with neutrons or protons as it turns out uh to actually get it to transform in a nuclear context to um, uranium-233. Uranium-233 is radioactive and it heats up. The salt then melts and becomes a fluid. The fluid then passes around the reactor and heat is transferred. And that heat is used to spin a turbine and generate steam and turn a turbine to generate electricity. What's interesting is they don't need water to cool this down. So this can actually operate in the desert just fine. What's also interesting, it's got two fail-safes. One is what's called Doppler broadening, which means the reaction can only go so far before it cascades and it actually stalls. And the other is if it gets too hot, they've got like this freeze plug. If it gets too hot for whatever reason, fuel's taken out of the reactor and it's put into emergency dump tanks and it can cool down in a safe fashion that's actually nothing to do with a uh, where it, it all spreads out. In, in So you've got two fail-safes. The other thing that is interesting is in a solid fuel reactor, you've got to stop the reactor and then take the actual stuff out. Or I think the can-do system that the Canadians got is probably the most advanced. Uh, you can actually sort of do it while the reactor is running. But this stuff, you can actually filter out. You can add more fuel and you can take the fuel that doesn't get burned up out while the reactor is running. Mm. Anyway, so love it.
Yeah. Brilliant. So this is a um, Oak Ridge Molten React Salt Reactor, 1969, 7.4 megawatts. It had 6,000 hours of power generation without a problem. They started with uranium, then they tried thorium. And based on that, they wrote this report. They said, okay, this works. Here's our research. We want some funding to build a full-size power station. And that's when Tricky Dicky Nixon uh, killed mm. the whole thing. Right. There's more. In China, they've actually got a two megawatt system operating and selling power commercially. It looks like it fits in a shipping container. Look at that. I haven't yeah. seen a picture of that yet. That's that's brilliant. Look at that. I can send you this stuff if you like. Not a problem. Please. All right. So uh, this is a this is a system that's happening in China that's actually uh, commercially selling power. There's a group in Copenhagen uh, called the Copenhagen Atomics that are uh, looking at commercializing this in Europe. And they're quite advanced. Uh, the business model is quite advanced. And they are actually having their, they've got two pilot plants. And it takes time to actually sort of bring the reactor online because you've got to circulate the fuel and get enough of it to go from thorium to uranium to the point where it's actually a self-sustaining um uh reaction and so they they are claiming that they'll be generating electricity in 2025 so this is no longer a theory uh. it's no longer a, and the chinese are doing it and i've actually heard directly from a chinese official that this what you're looking at here is real that yes in the go by desert they're actually doing it and they're trialing it now. Once they trial it, they're just going to go off the chain and start producing lots of these. The implications of this, because that's a small unit, that looks like it's going to fit in a shipping container. Under every mm -hmm. industrial site, you can have one of these units. Right, so under a smelter, under a, a mine site, uh, under a hospital, uh, anything. And so instead of having like one big power station and this massive grid, you can have lots of these sort of things that feed us things that we can decentralize the power grid so you don't need the big transmission lines anymore um and so what i'm going to show you now is the comparison between uranium and thorium now this is hilarious so here's our standard uranium light water reactor these numbers were actually put together by kirk Sorensen, and i saw one of his mm -hmm. charts and i've actually sort of uh repurposed to create this and kirk i haven't met you yet but uh Hope to meet you one day. Right. Mm. So we are going to hit the same targets. We want to generate 10,000 gigawatt hours across one year from one reactor. We mine 23 million tons of uranium ore and we extract out yellow cake. We convert it to uranium hexafluoride and we enrich it. The isotope we're after is U235, which naturally occurs about 0.7% in uranium. We've got to enrich it to about 4%. To, which is about the, the practical efficiency window. We then put that, so we've got 32.9 tonnes of nuclear fuel uh, uranium oxide uh, dioxide assembly uh, fabricators. Put them in the reactor, power goes off. And this, when it comes to the point when enough of the U235 has been transformed and it can't sustain the reactors any, uh, the reaction anymore, it actually, the, the rods become more trouble than they're worth. And they start to collapse the reaction, so they take them out. And that, and so, but you got um, a large proportion of other isotopes that don't help this reaction at all, but they're very radioactive. 
So 96% of the fuel rods are not used. Now, not mm -hmm. all nuclear waste is the same. Some of it has to be, uh, can be just be put in a, you know, in a waste dump, like very low, very, very low. Um, but then you've got like high level waste that has to be actually put in a deep underground repository. Incidentally, Finland's the only country in the world that's got one. So we're the mm. only country in the world that can actually manage the nuclear fuel cycle properly at this late stage of the game. Right, let's do the same thing with thorium. So this is our liquid fuel. I, I call them burners, a liquid fuel thorium burner. So we're going to do the same thing. But now we're going to take 280 tons of monazite mineral sands. Already, we've shrunk the system. Mm -hmm. And from that, we get 1.45 tons of thorium oxide, which we make a thorium fluoride salt. It's also got other things like beryllium in it and what have you. Mm -hmm. We pour that in the top of the reactor in, in portions, and we generate our power. Only about 4 to 5% is, is not actually transformed, and it's still radioactive and needs to be taken out. So we've gone from 96% to four to five percent so the system's smaller and we're using more of it what's also interesting is the waste that comes out as of different isotopes that are often used in the medical isotope industry right so you can you can actually take that waste and repurpose it if you don't want to do that you must store it you store it for 300 years and so you put that waste in a steel box lined with wax and that's it you don't even have to the storage requirements, the hazard sheet requirements are very different. It is the equivalent of running an isotope, medical isotope lab in a hospital. That's what we're... And so the, the level of training and the difficult... Like the whole uranium system is really, really complex. It needs specialist training and specialist equipment. Right? So... And, and, and the I've, amount I've of heard... I haven't chased down, but I've heard that we have a lot of thorium kicking around because it's a byproduct of some of the uranium mining. So, so that, that we, there's actually yeah. a lot more of it around. And we actually probably have a decent store of that in the United States, I heard. So there's so much, there's, there's a case in the United States where they had so much thorium that, that they didn't know what to do with it. So they buried it. It's a waste product that has no market. Mm -hmm. Where there's uranium, there's thorium. And in, and in any rare earth mine, there's thorium and it's considered a waste product. And one of the things I'm looking at with a research group in, in South Africa, hello, Dean, uh, in, in a plasma research, sorry, Matt, I'd love to give the shout outs. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, in the plasma research uh, group that's looking at plasma treatment of mineral sands that actually makes extraction of rare earths much, much easier, including the thorium. So, um, yeah, anyway, so we've got much less, uh, and, and every country's got thorium in some form, and there's so much of it around and the footprint is so small that what we've got is tens of thousands of years of fuel if we go this way. So the value proposition here is extraordinary. Now, this is technology that worked decades ago and our geopolitical adversaries are already out the gates and running. They're already looking at this. I believe India was looking at solid fuel thorium. But then again, mm -hmm. what they say and what they do if this information has been around for such a long time and if their allies are doing it, I would say India is doing it too. The United States um, has also been quietly trying to get this going. And everyone I sort of talk to believes this will change the world, but they're all sort of quietly looking at each other and says, eh, 
should should we say this out loud or not? And so I um one of the things I wanted to do was to do a thorium uh, uh study, like a feasibility study for the government of Finland. That's probably not going to happen now because other opportunities are coming up. But what I would say is the nation of Finland needs 85 terawatt hours a year. We could fuel that energy with this system with 11.4 tonnes of thorium fuel. That's one truckload. That's it. One truckload. Wow. And then and then, then you've got like a couple of hundred kilograms of waste for one year for the nation state of Finland. Right. So the footprint is so different. But also, um, you might notice the entire uranium system is radioactive all the way along. Whereas yeah. the thor um, thorium is is a fertile material, so it's it's a little bit above background radiation. Like we're in a sea of radiation now. It's it's slightly above, but it's not enough to have its classification. So the hazard sheet for thorium fluoride salt is keep it in a sealed plastic container so it's away from moisture. Mm. That's it, right? So you can have a gorilla scooping stuff into the top of the reactor. You know, like like you you, you don't need. You, you wouldn't do this, of course, but, but you, you don't need specialist equipment to handle highly radioactive fuel to put stuff in the reactor. And you need the equivalent of a medical isotope in a lab in a hospital to take the waste out in a regular, like every, I don't know, a couple of months, there's a couple of weeks, I don't know, whatever it is. The footprint of this is so different. So, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I, I just love that picture of I would have one of those two megawatt plants happily on my property um, and I would sell the excess off, you know, that that would be uh, that's how I would feel about it. So um, this actually this whole area gives me hope because I, I can clearly see a path that this works. But, you know, as you know, my country, as Churchill said famously, we'll exhaust all the other opportunity options before we do the right thing. Um, so. I mean, if we put a hundred billion into this instead of like killing people in Ukraine, I would have a totally different feeling about the future. But I, I'm not clear that there's really much happening at the official level about any of this no. stuff. And and no, my, no, no, no. my my analysis of it, which could be wrong, is that our system of governance and military people are not interested in this because it doesn't make fun explosive stuff as a byproduct out the back end. Um right. Yeah, you know, yeah. Point, it, point, point. It makes Sorry. rather uninteresting medically useful isotopes and that's it. You know, it's just, it's not, I, I think that, that it just, it, you don't get plutonium out the back end. I don't know what it is, but for whatever reason, we're not pursuing this and it makes the most sense in the world. I can't, I can't figure that out There's from a logical answer, standpoint. Um, there is a logical standpoint, but it depends on whose logic. Right. So, so in 1972, this report came out and so, okay, great. Um, a decision was made by the military at the time. Remember, the Cold War was happening, and that was mm -hmm. the primary problem. Uh, there was no energy problem at the time, and there was no resource problem at the time. There wasn't even an environmental movement. Right. right. So the military at the time made the choice that they would rather have a uranium civilian nuclear uh, fleet for two reasons. Number one, you could actually disguise the production of nuclear weapons because to get to plutonium, you've got to uh, um, you, you've got to take uranium two three five to a, a, another few stages of transformation. Right. So you could disguise the manufacture of nuclear weapons, and that's what they thought they needed: more nuclear weapons. Right. Um, yeah, that, that, that that's obviously what we needed. The other thing was money. 
so the nuclear uranium system was amazingly complex, which means you had a lot of high end, a lot of high end uh, um, stuff to be done where a lot of money could be made. Now, mm -hmm. Richard Dixon's on, 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 there's actually a recording of him actually talking about this where he wanted jobs in California and the uranium system was clearly going to have much more jobs, much more construction and much more high tech development to make it work. Right. So it was money. And it was a strategic decision where the military were calling the shots at the time. Since then, we've now got an industry that's protecting itself and no one wants to know about liquid fuel. Do you know, uh, as far as I know, they have not done the neutronic uh, simulation for liquid fuel. It hasn't been done. So, What's a neutronic simulation? So, so when you have a nuclear reactor, because you can, uh, part of the feasibility study is you've got to do a simulation of... Mm -hmm how something how the fuel will decay and actually operate in your reactor what isotopes will be produced uh and you've got to do a, a series of simulations and then you can actually make a judgment on risk management this has not actually been done in a public fashion for liquid fuel so the evidence to say it doesn't work doesn't exist no. we only say it does Right now we're back to the students gaslighting me that they have actually done proper work. Uh, Sign the form, please. Let me live. You know, uh, yeah, uh, like, like there's there's a there's a software uh, that does it. There's actually sort of you know came out of Los Alamos Laboratory. The people in Finland, uh, the group called VTT, wrote another another new software, and then they believe that that's actually the the best in the world. But apparently, Korea has developed their own software. And that's the third generation, and that's actually the most. And they've actually been quietly doing this. So the East has been collectively evolving and developing in ways that the West hasn't. And because the West has been telling the East what to do, and just because they said they'll do it, have they? They've quietly moved forward while we haven't. Right. And so I think there's going to be a divorce of everything East versus everything West. We are looking at the divorce. And when they do uncouple, when they do de decouple, I, I think we'll actually see thorium systems suddenly appear. Now, um, Simon, is there any particular um, material science that we're lacking in this point? I mean, I, I don't know the chemistry of what's involved in get, having a, a 800 degree Celsius or more liquid salt roaming around. But I mean, do we have do, do we still have that? The Did we lose the technology? Um, is it encased in those lost, you know, the the Oak Ridge documents? Do we have people who know how to do this? But if, I, if the United States wanted to start this up, where, where are we starting from in this story? So as I understand it, a lot of the knowledge hasn't has been sort of degraded, but we can get it back if we really wanted to. We mm -hmm. would probably retrain some of our existing staff to become so. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not a, just a, a case of just, just going down and finding the business that's doing this correctly and they're just doing it. Then again, you've got groups like Copenhagen Atomic that, that are so advanced and they're showing all the signs to having done this. So maybe that's already been done. Now, I've, okay. I've yet to actually go and meet them. Um, yeah, this is the group that's that's actually in Europe that's actually planning to produce, you know, uh, thorium burners. And I think that they're, they're looking at uranium liquid fuel as well. Mm -hmm. Right. But th they are actually doing the actual chemistry for that. But it'll probably be a commercial secret. The simple answer to your question is, I think some of us are still have that expertise but a lot of it's been lost in many sectors. So we've got to have a transfer of knowledge and we've got to go back and look at the past again. 
where I think thorium will struggle um, is, okay, it works. It's one of these things that's going to work on a small scale. Can we make enough of these to be useful for 8 billion people? Like, can we make mm. enough of them quickly enough? It, it might have some troubles in scale up. So what we're probably looking at is some areas around the planet will be just fine and others won't. Yeah. Because it takes time to build these things. And not very many people are at the moment. Yeah. It, it, we need time and money, but we also need geopolitical cooperation. There, there's all sorts of things we need. And at the moment, we've got all the people in the world not even believing that this is viable and not even believing that the problems it would solve are real. Mm, correct. Yeah. So will this actually change things? I, I see humanity going through a really rough patch, but it won't be equal. There'll be some areas that will do okay. Some areas will do really, really badly. And some areas might prosper. Energy is the master resource, but it's not the only resource. Agreed. Agreed. So, um, well, as we take this take this into to the to this next part, probably the last part of our conversation, let's let's talk about the Venus um, project that, that before you've I do a couple times. Let yeah. me show you something really cool. Okay, I love cool. Are you sitting down? Good. Yeah. Just All right. Yeah. So we need to change the rules. Love that picture. Mm. Right. So this is actually from a friend of mine, uh, Alan Butcher who's actually collaborating with the European Space Agency. And what he's doing is developing a job for the European Space Agency. They want a source of oxygen from rocks on the moon. You didn't see this coming, did you? No. Nope. What they're doing is they're bombarding rocks with microwaves. So this is okay. like someone in the tea room put a rock in the microwave to see what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> That's how good science works. <laughs> um, right. So... <laughs> What actually happens is you're leaving it in there for long enough. We're talking about, you know, like for, for, for a fair time. The rock atomic structure breaks down hmm. and the oxygen comes off and the molten globules of metal are produced. So when you put stuff in the microwave, um, you get the sparks. You know, you yeah. know like aluminium. That's what we're harnessing. It uses about the same amount of electricity as a hairdryer. So it can run off a solar panel. This is why they're interested on the moon. So... This is what's happening. So there's that table in there for basalt, for example, is made up of minerals that have oxygen in it. If you break the bonds and the oxygen comes off, you're left with pure metal looking for a place to go. Hmm. Right. So instead of mining stuff out of the ground, what you do is you go and pick up a, a rock from the local rock face. It, you don't have to go to, uh, and, and then you microwave it. Now, there's this weird relationship with sulfur. Now, sulfur accelerates this process. Right, and so which which means it becomes really really hot really really quickly. Right, so less energy is used, and suddenly you've got like globules of silicon, globules of titanium, globules of iron, globules of aluminium. Hmm. So then you've got to get the process of how do you sort, and so you'd use hydromet to extract uh, the metal out from after that. But you've actually you're actually producing from ordinary rock high grade metal ore from the, the weird rocks. Oh, what now? Here's the funny part. This is this is I, this is very amusing. Mine sites are producing mine tailings, and they're full of sulfur that create acid mine drainage. Yeah, and they don't know what to do. So I want to get paid to take them away, put them into a microwave, 
burn stuff, create pure oxygen? Maybe or do I drink the oxygen? I don't know. But, but then you've got these globules mm. of metal that normally you'd have to work pretty damn hard to get. <laughs> uh -huh. So what would happen if we did this? Find a useful industrial site, for example, a smelter that has a lot of slag and waste. Get paid to take yeah. the waste away. Yes, Your Honor. Right. Use that to offset the running costs. Put it into a microwave or a plasma torch, which I'm also looking at. Then you can get your globules of metal, put it into pilot scale leaching and use membrane separation instead of your conventional stuff, which means you have globules of metal. Use that same plasma torch to make your 3D printing feedstock. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so you put it into a 3D printing of components and you have saleable products. So in one shed, waste goes in one end Thank you, get paid. Thank you very much. At the other end, useful products are coming out in finished form in one shed. Well, now, that middle step, how much energy is required in that microwaving? I mean, you mentioned you could run it off a panel, but but uh, like to get a kilogram of to get a kilogram of stuff to 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 convert into globules that are large enough that you could you could do your pilot scale leaching. Unknown. Um, now, okay. everything, everything else I've seen so far, if it's too good to be true, it is, mm -hmm. right? So this is a really weird thing. It's showing promising results. All I would say, if I'm backed by a thorium reactor, is that a problem? Because we don't only need energy, we need a source of metals without mining yeah. out of everything. I don't know is the answer to that, and I want to find out. But okay. this is the kind of thinking that will collapse the just-in-time supply grid from six continents into one shed. <laughs> <laughs> well i love it I, i've got so many questions like like are microwaves the, the correct frequency and what happens if you vary those again, and da, 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 I again don't know, right yeah uh, this, this is the research once uh and in fact uh um this brings us to um the venus project so mm -hmm. let me just come out of that actually no let's do it this way what i want to do what i've been thinking look i've been working uh I'm presenting my work many, many times, many, many times. And the people I presented to are all senior. And about 30% of the time it's been government, but the reaction's been universal. Now, first it's shock, followed mm -hmm. by, I haven't been able to refute what I'm saying, even though given the time to do so. But the third reaction, which is universal, is they ask me what they should do. <laughs> like personally? Because I yes. run into this all the time too, yeah. I'm just a guy with a cheap computer and internet connection. They've got the resources <laughs> of their entire government behind them, and they're asking me? Yeah. And so, so what it became apparent was I was in a position to actually do this. And so I went away and thought about what needs to happen here. Now, I've been coming across many, many ideas that are actually out there, but we have rejected them for ideological reasons, not technical reasons. Mm -hmm. So two things need to happen to get us through this. One, more people need to understand the nature of what's in front of us. We need to get our arms around it, right? So what you're doing, you're right over the target of what needs to happen. Thank you. Now, the mm -hmm. second thing that needs to happen is we need to actually take some of these unorthodox ideas and transform them into useful engineering outcomes. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of them. Right. So assemble all unorthodox ideas into one place. And I've got over 100 really strange unorthodox ideas that people don't want to look at now give complete access to orthodox methodologies so they can cross fertilize and, and, and nurture we're talking about an innovation hub for a new energy paradigm 
a new resource sourcing paradigm and a new manufacturing paradigm, everything industrial, linked back to commodities and the environment that they come from. Operate to a mandate to reinvent the industrial system, develop a suitable system of high density energy generation, and develop a system to source raw material commodities that are local. Mm -hmm. So instead of actually having mine sites on the other side of the planet, can we get it down the road? Develop a manufacturing value chain to produce finished products that are strategic value, but not everything. But you know, if we simplify our society down to need less components to run it, and we design those components that are possible to recycle more effectively, and then we produce them in one city, what would that look like? So mm -hmm. collapse the six continent just in supply grid into one city. This is the degrowth target. The human system contracts and withdraws from the natural environment. So when the orthodox methodology is proved to be inadequate, turn to the unorthodox or accept failure. Use yep. the past and orthodox ideas differently in conjunction with present cutting-edge technology to create a new paradigm where future limitations are seen in a new light. The Industrial Revolution is the crossroads between ruin and the stars. What have we really learned? So that brings us to the Venus Project. Now, the Venus Project was developed by um, Jacques Fresco uh, in the 70s. So uh, Jacques and his partner, Roxanne, have been developing for the last couple of decades this idea of if we were to develop, the, the mandate behind the Venus Project is genius. Watch this. If we were to make a city, but we were to design that city with the best science had to offer, but we optimize it to the quality of life of the people in that city, what would that city look like? Mm. Right. So that's the mandate. When he did this stuff, it was in the you know, late seventies, early eighties, before there were resource crunches, before there were energy problems or, or any of this. And so a lot of his original ideas um, in their undiluted form belong to another time. So what, what the, uh, the Venus project people have found, they found my work and they said, okay, I pointed out some resource contraction. And do you know they're the only people on the planet who actually tried to meet the problem head on? And it says, all right, how do we change what we're doing to meet the constraints of what we're looking at? You know, the, the, the materials constraints, the energy constraints, how do we do this? And so the idea was to uh, put a... Um, uh, develop an innovation hub where we're going to look at a new energy paradigm. We're going to wrap a Venus-style city around it, and in that we're going to have a research center that's going to create a new energy paradigm. Right, And so this is what we're actually sort of doing. And so we're actually in the process of, uh, we've been talking now for a couple of months, and we've, we've, got, we've got some legals in place, so we're going to work together. Uh, we're going to formally launch probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks maybe a month's time, whatever, 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 fairly soon. And I can't tell you everything that we're sort of doing because agreements are still being discussed. We're looking at five or six sites worldwide. There's one preferred site. And the idea is we're going to get some funding and we're going to go and do this. And so instead of actually asking for permission, we're going to go to the middle of nowhere and develop our own... In, in Europe, for example, do anything, you've got to get a grant from a government. And I've come to the conclusion that if you try and do this, um, if you try and actually sort of go to an existing system, like City of London, and you try and set up one of these things, 
On the surface, they'll agree. But when it comes time to practice, they'll quietly shut you down. Mm-hmm. So the idea is to disappear over the horizon with a sort of small group of like-minded people, use common sense with what we've already got that we know that works, mm-hmm. develop an entirely new paradigm, and then come back. And that paradigm is this. Come back with an entirely different proposition, uh, and then we can change things. This is what I call Jacques' rest. We want to go... Uh, Jacques Fresco, I never met the man, uh, but I've admired him for some time. So so at what point would Jacques actually say, okay, we can have a rest now and, and uh, sit down and have a drink? Right. We want a sustainable human civilization, but we're going to operate on three fronts simultaneously, probably in a sequence, actually, but this is what we need to do. First is the industrial system of raw materials and energy, and that's where my work is. You know, uh, um, it's the uh, four-way combination of energy, minerals, technology, economics. But we also need an interaction with the planetary environment, and we also need a new social contract. And what I'm finding is when you actually sort of get down to this, is an industrial paradigm is not an effective is, is not the same thing as an interaction plan with the environment both are needed but they're not the same thing and a social contract is not the same thing as a new technology so you need to develop all three at once and when all three are in place then we can go to the center right and so this is what we were hoping to do with the venus project group that that uh, we're, we're part of now it's it's a what what i'm actually talking about here is the merging of something we will take the original ideas of the venus project some of them but we're going to merge them with other paradigms you know the whole degrowth movement you know you know things like humans we've now got to use less less resources right that gets built in the circular economy great idea in its current form it's unbalanced let's have a look at that steady state economy same thing great idea uh let's build it in uh, you know, and and so so there's a, there's a whole series of paradigms, and so the sorts of things that we're going to do for say um, so the environmental sector, we've got to learn to grow our food without using industrial petrochemicals or without GMOs. How do we do that? Right. We've also got to repair our relationship with the planet, and that needs to happen through the agricultural sector. How do we do that? Right. So now we're talking regenerative agriculture, permaculture design practices. Uh, you know, uh, there's a whole theme park of. So, so what's been suggested there is, in all st- in all stages, was there a research hub? We're going to get every paradigm I can get my hands on and put them around the same table. So we will have organic agriculture in all forms, you know, permaculture at all levels, regenerative agriculture. At the same time, we're going to bring what we have learned with existing industrial agriculture. There's an awful lot of science behind that. And everyone around the table is going to put look at each other and say, can we merge together now to develop a new paradigm of agriculture With within these constraints? We've got to be genuinely sustainable. We've got to look at things like soil health long term. We're not allowed to use petrochemicals. We can use technology in some respects, but not others. How do we do that? Right. So, so you've got the energy stuff that 
you know, like uh, some of the energy things that I was actually considering too is um, a new energy paradigm. And it's not just, uh, hang on, so let, let me find that for you. So, so that on its in its own right is 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 not. Hang on, let me just navigate to the. So, the energy paradigm itself, we we need you, a new relationship with it. If hmm? you want to share that, you're not sharing your screen at the moment. I'm about I'm about to. Uh, I'm, it's it's actually so large, it's taking time to load. <laughs> so it's low. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so at the heart of our enterprise. So the um. Yeah, so, so we've got some very strange things. So let me share this. This um, We're going to operate like an organic farm does, but in terms of in how an industry, like we're going to put industries together in a cluster. Now, one of the opportunities we've got, I'm from mining, right? Now, one of the things I noticed in mining is every mine site has this massive stockpile of rubber tires these massive trucks they got rubber tires on what do they do with them they dump them there's so many of them they can be seen from orbit like hmm. these, these massive open pits they've been running for 50 years they don't know what to do with the tires so the plan is to go out to a mine site cut the tires up because they're huge shred them at site in a mobile plant and bring them back to uh um bring them back to uh, where we're looking at, shred it and put it into a pyrolysis plant. We're going to pelletize the rubber. Pyrolysis is actually heating rubber without oxygen. And what happens is, is, is these tires are full of oil. It breaks down to a fuel oil. With a few more distillation steps, you've actually got um, a diesel substitute. Right, you also got things like it's a carbon black. Can we make graphene out of that carbon black? You've also got some steel scrap. The plan is this. Run our, we can run our construction equipment to build the city while we're there, but then we're actually going to build a... Um, we can run trucks and uh, um, buses and trucks. Right, and, and so what I'm so say, saying there is we've now got an energy source. We're where the energy source for transportation using an industrial waste an, an, an industrial waste uh, system. So we've got a whole lot of ideas that come out of the circular economy, but we're going to plug them in now where industrial waste dumps all around us happen to be useful. And you put the right technology together, and instead of saying we're going to make money, we're going to provide a service. Right, energy. Now, um, I promised you energy. <laughs> always, always deliver on your promises. All right. This is at the heart of everything. So the idea was uh, have an energy paradigm. And the idea was to actually put as many unusual ideas together. Uh, for example, Nikola Tesla. What was he doing? When I did my physics degree, Nikola Tesla wasn't mentioned once. Not once. Yet he was actually behind a lot of our... Um, He's behind a lot of our uh, um, technology. So what was he doing? So I, in, I, I actually went and actually had a look at what he was doing. And the question was, what was he doing? If it worked, how would society use it? And uh, yeah, and so, so he had the idea that energy, everything was harmonics and vibration. So let's look at a research center that's going to look at this head on. 
that every unorthodox energy idea I can lay my hands on is put in one place. And so what I'm hoping to do is what's what's apparent to me from looking at some of this stuff, what we call magnetics, electronics, electrics, and gravity are interacting in ways we don't understand. And there's an entirely new paradigm that's behind that. So, okay, I'm interested in thorium, but I'm also interested in this stuff. But it's all theory at the moment, and it all we need to work on it and develop it and see if any of it's real and viable. Apparently it is. All right, let's have a look. But in the open, and we can discuss it, and then we can cross-fertilize. And so we have uh, uh, um, implications like how we uh, change things. Anyway, so, so that's roughly what we're doing. The Venus Project is about to launch again. It's an evolution of their old ideas. And they've been working pretty hard on this now for some time. They're about to go. Uh, and what we, we're going to open the doors for donations to actually help us do this. We're going to launch you know, a couple of weeks' time, probably. But mm -hmm. we're going to work on this. And uh, you're invited, by the way, when, when we're actually up and running. Um, but we're going to give this a red-hot go. But there's now a plan behind this a feasibility style plan to develop unorthodox ideas outside the existing political structures in a place where we're not in competition with someone else for anything and we're going to build the whole system from scratch and so i'm going to disappear over the horizon with a small number of like-minded people and i'm going to come back in 10 years time with an entirely different proposition which i'm hoping will change things and so we're actually looking at proper funding structures and we're looking at proper engineering uh, um, ideas stitched together. And we're going to put it in a Venus style city. And this is awesome. And this is actually my next professional step. And if it works, that's it for me for the rest of my career. <laughs> <laughs> Your place in, in history will be secured. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't care about that stuff. This is entertainment. This is I, I've I've always wanted to do work that was meaningful, and most of the stuff I did for the mining industry wasn't meaningful. Mm -hmm. Like I got rich, but mm -hmm. it, it didn't wasn't that useful. This will be different. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, Frank Lloyd Wright said it's it's sculpting fog. Um, where we're trying to, you, you know, the thing is out there. It's an idea. It's, it, it's, it can come in, but it needs a, it needs to pass through somebody. Right. And you have to wrestle yeah. it. Right. So, so Carl Jung said, um, people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Right. Yeah. So it sounds, sounds like you've, you're, 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 you've got an idea and, um, now it just needs to be, now it just needs to be wrestled into reality. Right. Well, there's a group of about 20 people around me. Um, yeah. It's one of those serendipitous things, but the work I've been doing for the last five years has demonstrated to me what has to happen, where it has to happen, and who's going to do it and who's not going to do it. And that mm -hmm. helped narrow it. This is what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. And the technologies that I kept finding, well, it's not all doom and gloom, but we've got to do it. Someone's got to do it. And so how do we go about this? And academia is not going to change anything. They're too yeah. slow. And they're very ideological. Private mm -hmm. sector in its conventional form is dictated to the profit motive and doesn't think in terms of long term. But but if we can actually somehow create an entirely different version of this. And so there's two straight stages of funding that we're going to sort of go through this. It's been mapped out and planned out. I've got people around me helping me who are actually sort of part of the 
big money industry system to advise that this will happen. We're also getting all the unorthodox ideas from an engineering point of view, and we're stitching it together into one coherent plan. And we're going to do it in stages. We will start small and we will have some services so to demonstrate that this works, that works, and so on. And then the implications of that can then be used to build on it. And eventually we will build a concept city of 10,000 uh, people. Mm -hmm. That'll do research at its hub. I call the research institute the Prometheus Institute uh, because I like the name. Uh, and But then every cool, we, we, we've got to go from just talking about it to doing it. So we've got a whole series of industrial systems as well that are engineered into unconventional clusters. And we're going to reinvent how transport happens and how energy generation happens. And what's interesting is I don't have to invent anything. It's already there. I've just got to assemble yes. a different order. Yeah. Well, this is an experiment that needs to be run. And, and if we had a, a, a non-silly uh, structure as a culture across the globe, um, there would be billions for this project. Because, you know, a lot of people like very waggishly people like, you know, what, what's your problem with, with you know, these uh, solar and wind things? I'm like, well, the problem is they don't build themselves, right? Mm. And so if we wanted to, we should take a medium, smallish city, 10,000 people sounds about right, give them a starting uh, bequeathment of all the solar and wind they want, but they have to harvest energy out of that system to rebuild these systems hmm. and then live off of the surplus that's that's the balance that's left after that. I mean, we should be running that experiment. Just to, can it be done? My suspicion hmm. is no, right? Because there's too many yeah. dependencies and too many subcomponents that we haven't thought through. And that's the stuff you find when you try and, ah, oh, well, you know, it was all good, except we couldn't find a way to get dysprosium for our magnets <laughs> yes. uh, in, in Des Moines. It didn't work out. You know, double palm, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and and so this is a. Um, it becomes apparent that that we're not working the problems. So the narrative. How often have you heard, for example, that human innovation is wonderful and it will save us? Right, all the time. Right. Yeah. Those people who say that use those words to shut down the conversation. Of course. Stop yep. making me feel uncomfortable. So what they're really saying is someone will think of something, but not them and not not you. Um, yeah. uh, look, go away. <laughs> the market will fix it. It's the same conversation. So I do believe that human innovation can get us through, um, get, get a solution on the table. But because we've left it so late, I believe your original question was, um, is this a predicament? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, or is it a problem? A problem right. to be solved. Right. right, and it's it is a predicament for the people who point blank refuse to see this. It is a problem for some people who are prepared to problem solve and happen to be at the right place at the right time with the right things around them. And because we've left this so late, the the future is coming in in a non non linear fashion, where different parts Probably. of the planet will be okay, but other parts certainly won't. Yeah, agreed. And and to those people who say, oh, you know, human ingenuity will think of something like <clears throat> human ingenuity is an artifact of people having free time that's not dedicated to grounding up their calories for the day. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. itself is an artifact of net energy, which itself is a derivative of the fossil fuels. So <laughs> I predict we're kind of at peak human ingenuity in this story right because eight billion people somebody will think of something but only if they have the capacity to not be worrying about their their daily survival and have so, the resources and luxury of, of tools and things to play with 
you, you all have found this, but I've, I've been watching your posts for years and they've been top notch, but I've seen so many people aggressively try and tear you off your perch. Right. And, and so I came to, I've had found the same thing. And I came to the realization was we are trying to force a solution for everyone, all 8 billion people. And if we either save all 8 billion people in one step or don't, don't waste my time. So I've come to the conclusion that since most people are actually quite rude about this, mm -hmm. you can't can tell, you, you really shouldn't be trying to tell people what to think anyway. So if they say, oh, someone will think of something, they say, see you later, mate. I'm off to think of something and I'll leave you behind. Your fate yeah. is to be left behind. Um, and it says, and if you don't think of something, your fate is to freeze to death in the dark. And so, and so, okay. and so, so, so in other words, do, do this in a non-linear fashion. The future is small, is beautiful. So we will go small as we rebuild a new system. It'll be simple. It'll be small. It will be degrowth. It'll be energy dense in an unconventional way, or it will be low energy dense if this doesn't work. You're right. But we've got to go and look. Right. I'm a researcher at, in my DNA. I'm a researcher. I solve problems. My job is to face difficult problems and find a way around them. Right. And, and so I, I don't like hearing things like it's not possible. Um, your fate is the script says we're all to die. Mm -hmm. Fuck the script. We can make our own world. Right. And that's what I wish to do for the next i want to move into the solution space i'm tired of presenting people the problem and having them um look at me with this glassy-eyed stunned mullet look and then and then yeah. there's there's no sign of life to any of them and any time that they show any sign of life at all the people around them stomp it out and so so so, so what do we do here right yeah. so so uh, you know, um, are we different between a yeast extract um, a yeast culture or not Right. So and, and so instead of actually asking everyone to think about this, instead of telling people about the problem and getting them to think and work in a collaborative fashion, round up the uh, the tribe. You, you, know, you call them the tribe. Mm -hmm. Pick 10,000 useful people, disappear mm -hmm. over the horizon. Yep. <laughs> Daniel Quinn said that. He said that that the way the way you get a new system is people walk away. Mm -hmm. and you just got so so this is a broken system. I mean, listen, I'm 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 kind of getting out of the problem definition stage of things too. Crash course is pure problem definition. Um, if people can't detect here or here the problem set, they're lost. They're they're they as Matthias Desmond said, this is the thirty percent of people who just uh, for, they're they're not going to get it. Um, and it's not going to happen. So sorry about that. Um, but we got to get into the solution space because, because what else is there, you know, and people are waking up to this all the time now and we're, you know, I get more and more of that, that stunned look and people say, you know, what do I do? And I think that's mm -hmm. fine. Build your own lifeboat, make sure you got water and food and stuff. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yep. But, but then what, right? Cause, um, mm -hmm. you know, that's really where we got to be at this conversation. So I, I too, am interested in finding the people and COVID has been great for this, finding all <laughs> the people out there who actually stand tall as you know intellectually you know legitimately curious and open-minded and are not moral cowards um <clears throat> many doctors failed both those tests um but we we find now that we can find each other and i actually think that's that was the point of all this in many respects so people yeah, have found seen... each other and, you and know, what, what are they, we really made of yeah 
why you're here, right? It's very existential, right? Like it's, you know, like, like, like I, let me get back to that Carl Jung quote. I, I do believe that ideas have people. I believe personally that, that we're here to have a life of meaning and purpose. Mm. But that means that you're going to have to really be your true self and bring and take real risks and do and integrity. stuff that yeah yes deep integrity right um because what else is there at the end of it all right what else is so there? i saw you know many people around me they showed me their true strength what they were really made of um, yeah. um now the best example of strength and integrity in the face of serious adversity and high risk was my friend marson in australia right he is the example of what we should be and and so many other people disappointed me and that that really taught me a lot about people and what actually has to happen well, what did he do and, to demonstrate that so um uh, uh, he, he worked in a university as a staff member they tried very very hard to coerce him to take the jab mm -hmm. he very respectfully and politely said no he also risked his career and in fact he destroyed his job prospects at this university by documenting what was happening in terms of hazard advice he documented things sent them off to um insurance the, the insurance group says that you are not looking after your staff and so later when all this comes out there's actually documentation to show they did indeed actually have this pointed out but they still did what they did um, at the same time, there was what was called the Velvet Revolution that was rolling out in Australia, where they were trying to get, uh, you know, um, uh, common law recognised, and so they were kind of trying to use common law to try and stop this. That they were trying to force people to take the jab in Australia in ways that shocked me, mm -hmm. uh, and the worst of behaviour that we saw that really sort of come out in, the, in terms of the police state. Anyway. So, so, so Marston faced all that down. He used the system in terms of the way it should have worked. He did it respectfully and he did it intelligently and he documented things, which means in future, what he did is now embedded in place. So he's done society an enormous favor and then it cost him. Mm. But he has since moved on to another job and everything's fine, fine now. But he showed true integrity and true strength in the face of risking everything and losing everything with no support. And so that demonstrated to me internal reserves. And that's the sort of person I want next to me as we move into this really, really tough environment where it's going to be volatile and we're doing, um, we're, we're changing the world. Because what someone does when the wheels fall off tells you do you want this person standing next to you in a storm or not? How many people around you that you saw demonstrated that they are not to be trusted under any circumstances by what they oh, did? about 80, mm -hmm. 85%. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right. So society has is still yet to recover from that. Right. And, and um, I'm putting together plans for the future. I'm no longer interested in the opinions of other people mm -hmm. who refuse to look at the problems and who who behaved in a way that can only be called disgraceful um, through that era. That told me everything, mm -hmm. right? So, so I'm not saying that I will only work with people who did reject 
uh, the vax. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is the people who did actually face down that problem told me who they were. Right. Yep. And and so, you know, yeah, anyway, you know all this stuff. Yeah, well, it's good to hear it from somebody else, of course, and and of course, my, the people who listen to me will will understand this right away. Um, so, so what we're really talking about, though, is to get to this new future you're talking about. What I love is because I share this view completely. Is we don't need it'd be great if we come up with some new technology that we'll we'll factor that in. But we don't need any. We have mm -hmm. all the pieces. We have to assemble them into a right thing, and it's very complex because we're going to have to redo our belief systems, our agreements our social structures, what we value, our priorities. You left one thing out in your description of the people you're going to bring in. You, we need a new form of money because debt-based yeah. money is a terrible idea, right? Um, <laughs> so personal opinion, right? But you need a money that that aligns all this, right? So, so that means that you need people who are brave enough to set aside their old belief structures and wrestle with adopting a new one which is never a, here Here it is, I've written it down, Simon, it's on a three by five card, just read it and we're good. It's always a process, it's an emotional process, it's a rewiring process, and you have to give that time. And my concern is that we don't have a lot of time. I can feel the, my, my personal urgency meter is getting more and more alarmist <laughs> with every passing year, right? But if we think that we have till 2027, I mean, think about this. So I, a few years ago, I'm, I'm at a, a pension manager's meeting. So these are pension managers, teachers funds, firemen funds, California's CalPERS, all these people, right? And so I give my little song and dance about these some of these issues, and, and particularly that it sort of coalesces in this idea that we don't have future growth. And they're just like stunned, you know, they can't process it. And I said, if I'm right in your fiduciary duty, their time horizon, because they're pension people, is 75 years. At that time, I said, that brings us out to the year 2090. What do you, are you in your fiduciary role being responsible if you're planning to just set up a portfolio that you imagine is going to be doing all of these things out to 2090 as is, but I'm showing you risks that are very real, very quantifiable, and you should at least have somebody dedicated to saying, is this guy full of shit or not, mm. Right. They're not even having the conversation, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's interesting. So we've, um, we actually put together a, an idea for a new financial system that's actually resource-based. Um, if you've got time, I can go through it. So uh, where is it? Yeah, there. So we got this. The Venus Project originally had this idea that they wanted to have a cashless society. Uh, now, that might be okay for 2,000 years from now. But we've got to grow up yeah. as a species before we get to that. So as a stepping yeah. stone, we propose this. So we're going to have two tiers. One is the necessities. Everyone who works in our concept city or lives um, is going to have the basics given to us. Uh, uh, but in a, but a, as in they'll have access to accommodation, food, water, sanitation, electricity, education, uh, um, health care. Uh, so this the the basics of um of human living and it'll all be optimized in a system where we track resources not people so we're not a surveillance society we're tracking resources at the level of what gets consumed at the local supermarket and where did it come from we don't have to care about what people are doing the second one is how do we interact with the um modern world so 
everyone will get the equivalent of two wages. One is that the actual actions of living uh, will be, we have access to if we choose. That's the phrase, if we choose. In addition to that, we will get a wage, which is like conventional. Is it is it the US dollars? Is it is it Bitcoin? Is it gold bullions? I don't know. What we'll see. But mm-hmm. but you've got the idea that you've got your conventional monetary system in some form. So the people who actually can live there uh, have a um, a way of accruing wealth. So after ten years of working there, they've got something to show for it. And when they leave the city, they can interact with the rest of the world. And if they want to go off and buy stuff and do stuff in terms of choices, they can. Mm-hmm. But the whole what is needed to survive so so we're trying to have the idea of the collective meets the enlightened individual in the same system so we're, we're trying to evolve past the idea of capitalism communism or all any isms you think of and build something new we'll start out as a private company with a job to do operating not unlike a mining um a mine in the middle of nowhere we're going to build a city run a research lab that research lab will be an IP hub. Lots of IP will come of it. Some will be uh, made open source. Some of it will be kept confidential and some of it will be commercialized. The commercialization of that IP is a revenue stream that will then finance the actual operation of the people living in that city. We will also have a series of industrial hubs making commodities, but also finished manufactured goods, which all can be sold to the market as well as used in the city. So we have multiple revenue streams so then we'll actually look to the needs and necessities of the people in that city first. And then money will go off to investors who invest in this. Um, and th- then we'll carve it up uh, beyond that. Right. So so the, the, we, we still don't know how to do this. Will they run in parallel or in series? And the, when we get there, we're going to have to sort of try things. Um, and we have to build a society first before it can function. Now, we're going to run a game theory lab on a number of things to see if what social contract will work and what won't, but also what monetary system will work and what won't. So there'll be a try, a suck it and see attitude to try a few things. If it breaks down, then we'll just have to go back to the conventional and, and think of something else. But we're going to have a good old stab of reinventing how money happens and what money is used for. And if we can actually yeah, take I, away necessities... I, I, I think there's a real chance here. This is like so there's so many use cases for blockchain that that never have come true. But but I actually think that because I, I know that incentives shape behaviors and, and that humans need individual incentives and 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 it's very important, right? Okay, but if you said that that at the moment something is produced, it had a um, a, a unit of of digital currency attached to it, right? So let's say a barrel of oil comes out of the ground, yep. it has. A unit of currency attached to it and that as that's consumed the 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 currency is consumed and we said that's it oil is is the the you know the the fountain of youth in our society that's that's the the lifeblood of everything just that idea that, that you would ha- have your currency physically attached to the things you're producing and it doesn't but you know that's not straight barter right it's not like oh i have a potato let me see what i can go do with it but that the, there can be a way here now with technology to make sure that our money system is actually connected to the things that we're valuing and that, that that deliver our our value to us. It would take a lot of experimentation to get that right because humans are yeah. endlessly creative in bypassing and gaming systems. Um, yeah. So yeah, would so take a we're, while. We're a small community, very far away, experimenting on this sort of thing. 
but we want to get to the point where we can manage our resources in dynamic equilibrium so we never get to the point where we're hit with shortages. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it's transparent, it's auditable, nothing's hidden from anyone. Uh, we're going to use uh, blockchain technology, machine learning, AI, but as subservient tools where people run the show. Right. Uh, Interesting. And, right. Yeah. And so, so it's just an idea at the moment. We, and the, the, of, there are practicalities that need to be worked out, but that's what we're going to have a stab at. Well, fantastic. I, I'm going to wish you all the best and I hope to be involved in, in some capacity. And um, I can't wait to, to hear more about it as it unfolds. So um, with that, Simon, thank you so much for your time today. We're going to close this here. We could talk for hours and we will. So I hope this is the first of many. Um, okay. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you for your intellectual bravery. And I know that you had costs too pursuing this, but you looked at it, you said somebody's got to bring this through and you did it. So thank you for doing that. Uh, it's just incredible work. So um, thank you. Really appreciate what you're doing. Right. So now we've got to put some results on the ground. That's, that's, <laughs> yes, that's the tricky bit. <laughs> Well, one way or the other, well, you know, people say, oh, you know, you don't believe in solar. I'm like, no, I'm 100% I believe in solar technology. I guarantee you in a thousand years, humans are living on solar, right? <laughs> <laughs> By which I mean, we might be just, you know, like we used to be yeah. growing fields, you know, of crops. Yeah. And But uh, no, we, we've got it. We, we have an opportunity here, but the window's closing to really use our technology. I love the way you frame that. So there's a bifurcation moment. We either go back to that subsistence living or we can we can use the technology and our understanding to get to this next place it's worth a shot we that's a, that's a worthy pursuit right there so so the idea is to have as many solutions on the ground as possible and we'll see which one works this is one there are others so it's not an either or let's have them all absolutely hmm. absolutely well simon so glad to have had this conversation finally thank yes. you yes thank you